Demir's Ambulances is one of the largest, most trusted ambulance design and manufacturers in the world, with a vision to build safe, reliable, and efficient emergency vehicles to assist paramedics in saving lives. Demir's manufactures Type 1, 2, and 3 emergency medical and fire ambulances that set the bar for quality, innovation, attention to detail, and rigorous testing. To find a Demir's Ambulance Dealer in your region, visit www.demirs-ambulances.com. Your partner on the road, every day, on every call. Is your fire department prepared to face challenges like the turbulent economy, recruiting and retention, and funding? Level up and get the training and strategies you need on the issues that matter most at WAVE 2023. Featuring ESO Training Academy on April 11th through the 14th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. ESO, a leading provider of fire RMS and EPCR software, brings together national industry leaders, quality training, and experienced fire and EMS professionals for a unique conference experience that will inspire you to drive change within your organization and prepare for 2023's challenges. For a limited time, our listeners can use the discount code FIRETRUCK to save $100 on a full four-day conference pass. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from some of the nation's top experts in emergency services. Visit ESOWave.com to register today. That's E-S-O-W-A-V-E.com. See you in Austin on April 11th through the 14th, 2023. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, empowered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. All right, welcome back to the next edition. This is the March 2023 edition of the Mayday Monday podcast. Uh, I've got a lot planned for the show here tonight. First thing, I want to do, as we have done in the past few months, is to recognize to mention those firefighters who have died in the line of duty since the last time we were together. Um, With that, we had a firefighter, Brandon Norbury, from Gresham, Oregon. He suffered a stress overexertion issue while, while participating in department training. Trey Evans Dumaran of the Maui Department of Fire and Public Safety was swept into a storm drain while he was assisting other public safety employees. Todd Yandre of Lake Mills, Wisconsin, suffered a heart attack after participating in department training. Chief Stephen Michael Smith from Haleyville, Alabama, was killed in a traffic collision while responding. Ethan Quillen, a volunteer firefighter lieutenant from Paw Paw, Michigan, was electrocuted while he was clearing debris and trees from an ice storm and a tree collapsed, causing a power line to strike him. Paul Clodier of Webster, Massachusetts, died of apparent heart attack while responding to an emergency. 
Apparatus operator Ricky Hill Jr. of Flint, Michigan, suffered a medical emergency while battling a trailer fire. And Jason Arno of the Buffalo, New York Fire Department was killed while fighting a commercial building fire. Uh, so as we do each month, please uh, think about these members over the next um, weeks, months, years. Uh, be with, think about their families, their friends, their fire departments who are, who are suffering in this time and be with them. So far, um, that, was a, that was a big amount, a large amount of firefighters killed in the month of February. Um, again, we started this month off with the, the death of Jason Arno from Buffalo, and I'm sure everybody in the fire service has watched those, those videos and that stuff that's coming out of Buffalo and a very tragic incident there. Uh, Jason was a young four-year member there. Uh, sounds like a bright guy, like like we've seen with all a lot of line of duty deaths. So just think about Buffalo um, and what they're going through. So um, again, this, this month, uh, this one's been a tough one to get together. Um, over the last year or so, I've seen each of these guys and uh, Chris, Chris specifically has reached out and said, hey, um, let's talk about Brett Tarver and the Southwest supermarket. Uh, last year, I, I said, hey, Brett, I said, uh, Chris, when it, when it comes around to March, let's get together. Uh, being the good guy that he is and, and probably not as much on his plate as uh, some of us because he's retired now is he called me and said, Hey, Tony, whenever you're ready, we can do this. So this is awesome, right? I love to have like time ahead of, of the Mayday Monday. It, it becomes a lot of this stuff comes down to like the last minute. We're trying to jam it in. Well, all these guys are like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. So I'm thinking I'm ahead of the game. Well, then trying to juggle four schedules and here we are tonight is March the 5th, March the 5th, which, by the way, is my 29th wedding anniversary. So, um, men, um, if you see Heather, see my wife, you know, uh, thank her uh, for, for allowing her to give, give some time to the Mayday Monday on our 29th wedding anniversary. So uh, tonight we have a wide selection here of people. Um, we got... Um, Dennis Laguerre from Oakland. We have uh, Chris Stewart from Phoenix and Keith Stakes here from suburban Washington, D.C. So um, while it's, it could take up a lot of the podcast, if you would, just give me a quick introduction. Tell me a little bit about who each of you are. So if these people were under a rock in the fire service and don't know who you are, uh, maybe they will, will find out who you are. Chris, will you uh, just a brief introduction? Yeah, you bet. Uh, my name's Chris Stewart. Um, uh, as Tony said, I did, I retired from the Phoenix fire department back in uh, September of 2022, uh, just shy of 32 years. Uh, I left as a deputy chief working in a bunch of different positions. Uh, probably the one I appreciated the most was my uh, time as director of training in Phoenix. Uh, um, I was working in the Phoenix fire department when Brett Tarver was killed in 2001. In fact, I had been a company officer for all of 11 months when this happened. Um, and, uh, and then was fortunate enough to participate in the recovery process afterwards. So I feel like I have a little bit of a firsthand understanding. I was not at the incident. It was a C shift incident. I was a B shifter for a long, long time. Um, however, um, participating, I actually went in, I relieved one of the companies that ultimately got bred out. I relieved the officer there and uh, that night. So I got the firsthand information and then I've got information about, you know, the process and, and how we went through it and really what we're doing with it today. Quite honestly, so I'm thrilled to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity. 
No, again, Chris, I can't, I can't uh, thank you enough for, uh, for, for knocking on the door and saying, Hey, don't forget, you know, let's talk about this because this is a, this is an important one. Uh, Dennis, I, I saw you getting ready to talk. So go ahead. A brief introduction, Dennis. <laughs> I like how you emphasize that. Uh, captain retired from the city of Oakland, California. Uh, I was fortunate in my career to work in a couple different deployment models. So I worked for the state of California for Cal Fire and a combination county. Uh, and then I worked for a county fire department and then the city of Oakland. So I've kind of seen um, responses to large buildings uh, from packing house fires, agricultural buildings to uh, strip malls to, um, you know, uh, food processing plants, uh, all the way to uh, uh, industrial metal shops and stuff like that in Oakland. And uh, it's definitely one of those things that uh, I think needs to be talked about. And after I retired from the Oakland Fire Department, I pretty much focused uh, on continually teaching about fire stream development, handline deployments, fire stream application methodologies and stuff and and being on these UL studies and having a consulting company around these subjects, I just think um, there's so much that's unquantified in large building fire that it probably needs to be um, rectified and chipped away at in a mo more aggressive fashion than it is being done. No, I, th I think you're I think you uh, hit on it. That's why I wanted to make sure that we got together and talk to Dennis. Dennis has been, we've been working, trying to meet, get some other fire departments to come on and do the commercial building discussion. And perhaps we can have a, you know, a sidebar Mayday, Mayday Tuesday or something on, on that one day. All right. Now, Keith, uh, Keith is the reason kind of the three of us, uh, Chris, Dennis, and I kind of know each other because uh, he's a UL guy, but uh, Keith, real quick, Yep, <clears throat> appreciate it, Tony. Uh, my name's Keith Stakes. I'm one of the research engineers with UL. Uh, I've had the pleasure to do fire service-based research focused on strategies and tactics uh, for about 10 years now, and uh, have been in the fire service here as a volunteer in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, since 2005, and uh, currently serve as a battalion chief with the Bethesda Rescue Squad. So I've had the uh, pleasure to work with these gentlemen on uh, various projects that we've had over the years. Uh, including coordinated fire attack, where we're kind of taking a, uh, a first stab at large volume or commercial type fires. So looking forward to getting into that and appreciate the invite, Tony. Absolutely. I'm glad you could, um, you could be here. Uh, you've got a sliver of time, it sounds like, before you go to your next uh, uh, research, research study and stuff. So I, uh, it's good that we were able to find some time and jam it in here. So, um, Commercial building fires, I've been wanting to talk about it. Um, it's such a rare thing. I can tell you, um, I come, I was raised on a department where we we fought every fire the same way, right? Every fire was a, a row house fire. So uh, the, giving some attention to this topic um, is, is good. And with the anniversary of Brett Tarver, um, this gives us the chance a little bit more. Um, let me get this up here. This is what we're going to kind of touch on here with, where's my PowerPoint? There it is. So this is the, this month's, this is this month's posting. We'll go out for, um, on the fire engineering tomorrow and, and for you to see, um, and it kind of touches on again, the, the decision-making matrix, if you will, 
of when to pull a two and a half. And it's kind of dedicated to the memory of, of Brett Tarver. While again, the, the fire attack wasn't necessarily the issue at the, at the Southwest supermarket. It definitely is going to be an issue with commercial building fires. So as you think about your, um, your, your attack, your plans, uh, there's, there's some things that can maybe help you with the decision-making on when to pull a two and a half. And we'll talk more about that later, but let's talk about Brett. What, what I know about Brett was at the time of, of his death, he was 41 years old. He was born in California. Before coming to Phoenix, he served with the Sun City Fire Department. Is that close by there, Chris? Yeah, it's just uh, on the outskirts. It's part of the the, the regional automatic aid system here in Phoenix and uh, um, just in the kind of the southwest corner of that. And and what I can what I gather from reading about the, this this tragedy and, and his life and times was that he was a devoted family man. At the time, I think of of his death, he was building a, a, corral, a corral at his house because his kids and his family were into riding horses. Um, married to Robin and um, kind of uh, what what strikes me and, and kind of tears at my heartstrings is three daughters, uh, Rachel, Sarah, and Caitlin. As um, Seems like a lot of guys I know we all have, are are blessed with daughters. So uh, Brett was was as well. Um, Chris, any insight of uh, Brett? Again, I know you were you had been on the department a little bit, and it's probably a pretty big place down there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I was very much a, a new Brett. Um, we were not tight, but we definitely knew each other. We're we're of the same generation in the Phoenix Fire Department. I think he might have come on a year or two behind me, and uh, and that was kind of we were both at the beginning of a big hiring wave for the city of Phoenix. Um, so we had a lot of shared experiences from the training academy, recruit training staff, and you know what we learned and how we learned it. You know, coming in on the Phoenix Fire Department, he ended up working on uh, Engine 14. Uh, uh, where he where he was assigned uh, this day um and he was a well-known guy he was a big powerful firefighter that that people would you know uh be very excited to work with and and especially go to fires with because you you knew he was he was competent and 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 really happy to go to work so um yeah i i uh I see in this photograph, that's actually his recruit training, uh, uh, the, his picture uh, that, that we published uh, of all of us, at, uh, you know, when we graduate from the academy. So that's his recruit training picture. Um, and and I got a chance. In fact, now I I work in a small fire district just outside of Phoenix or on the edge of the Phoenix automatic aid system with, uh, with the, the guy who's my fire chief now was actually a recruit training officer in this class. So he knew Brett very well. So it's we're, we're all connected in some way to it. So um, I know Brett was a, a paramedic. Was, are all were all of you guys? Uh, did you go through paramedic school? Did you get hired as paramedics when you came on? So actually, Brett did get hired as a paramedic, and that wasn't super common for us at that time, anyway, um, because we had our own paramedic training program. I was a paramedic for uh, quite a while in the Phoenix Fire Department. Um, I I took my my entrance test and and went to went to medic school like uh, with a couple years on the job and he's one of the folks that actually started out as a paramedic because uh, I think he had been trained as a Sun City firefighter uh, as a paramedic so coming over that was just one more reason to to pick somebody up like Brett besides who he is the skills that he brought with him that was a a big get for the Phoenix Fire Department is everybody medics. 
So at the time, no, we probably had um, maybe 50% of the engine companies in the system were paramedics. The rest of them or were ALS. The, the other 50% were BLS companies and all the latter companies at that time were BLS companies, but we are a, a fire-based EMS system. So uh, uh, we're all going on the calls um, or on the EMS calls. Um, he just happened to have been in a medic fairly well since the beginning of his career in Phoenix um, and uh, was equally a good medic as, as he was a firefighter. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, the Phoenix area. I, I, I visited there, as you know, I, I tried to, to get together with you, but I think you were out somewhere um, enjoying your retirement because it's right after you retired. I think I, I came. Yeah, out. exactly. Yep. It took some time off Phoenix capital city. I know that interests you, Dennis, uh, 1.6 million people in the population. Now there's a metro area, and uh, I have a picture of the metro area, like you you were talking about, with which 4.8 million, which um, the city is 517 square miles. That's a pretty big city. Um, it was settled in 1867, so it's an old place. Confluence of the the Gila and the the Salt Rivers. And if you think about it, which is something I've done with the May Day Mondays is the density that I, that I like to compare, which Phoenix is 3,100 people per square mile. Um, my, my Where I was for 29 years is 11,000, where I am now 65 people per square mile. So it's interesting to kind of to compare that stuff with, um, and then of course, you know, you have the respective fire departments that respond to those areas. And uh, Phoenix uh, does a good job of having a lot of resources. Yeah, so we're uh, our metro area is what we call uh, our our automatic aid consortium, and so we now have I think twenty eight municipalities in our automatic aid system. So essentially, it's a boundaryless system with uh, uh, two separate dispatch centers. Mesa dispatches I think for five uh, departments, and then the rest are dispatched from Phoenix. So it's it's actually it acts and behaves as a large single fire department, although there's uh, it, there's individual leadership within, and we we all work under the same standard operating procedures and the same communication model and uh, and all of that. So it's a it's a unique system. So with that, is there is there some tanker areas, some rural water supply stuff that you have, or tenders, I guess you guys call them out there, right? Yeah, so there are in some of the outskirts um, uh, and then in some of the areas, we have big preserve areas in, in, in the city of Phoenix, the city of Scottsdale has huge preserve areas um, that are public lands, uh, but they don't have hydrant infrastructure or anything like that. So there is some small portions of unincorporated parts of Maricopa County that our departments and districts protect. So um, in those areas, um, probably you know, far less than 10% of the, the overall area of the, of the system actually has some, uh, you know, tender operations or net where tender operations are actually necessary. The vast majority of it is urban and suburban hydrant fed, uh, a fairly, fairly reliable system. So you see the picture there on, on the right of that's the city proper, right? Correct. And those Correct. are like neighborhoods in the city. Yeah. Those are the, the kind of the, the neighborhoods or, uh, you know, uh, villages, I think the city of Phoenix actually likes to call them. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the, the way it gets broken down. And that's actually fairly accurate. We've grown a little bit, I think, maybe uh, since this uh, time. Um, but, you know, since we have so much space, 
we haven't had the need to build up. We've been, you know, this perpetual, and I'm a, I'm a native of Phoenix. So the entire time I've, uh, my, my entire life, we've been building out and it's just now getting to the point where they're starting to build up. Um, for the vast majority of my career, we had maybe 200 high rise buildings in 520 some square miles. And, uh, and I would say that number has probably increased by 30 to 40% in the last three or four years alone, or maybe, maybe more, let's say the last five years alone. Um, so we're actually starting to become a, a, a city that's got a little bit of elevation as far as residency and commercial occupancies. And then, then we've got this boom of this platform construction, mid-rise, um, uh, wood framed that, uh, um, is going to cause a lot of consequences for the for Phoenix firefighters someday um, when we start experiencing fires in those occupancies. So I was there at the um, at Blue Card. Where is that in, in what neighborhood is that in? Uh, so that is actually in probably the border of the Camelback East and uh, in Canto areas. Well, way down there. OK. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. All so right, that's over talk- on 8th Street and Osborne. Let's talk about the fire department. So about 2000 members strong. That includes, yeah, so, I guess, maybe your office staff and your operational people. Yeah. So right now the firefighters are sitting about 1850, I think was the number they, they told us the other day. Um, and then support staff is around 400. So we're probably, you know, 20 in the neighborhood of 2200 total members. Um, I think there we're up to 66 engines. They'll be adding two additional engines here shortly that were approved in the last uh, or in this year's budget and last year's budget. Um, we still are probably what I would consider, and maybe most people would consider understaffed with 14 ladder companies. Um, we have three heavy rescue companies that we call squads in our system. Um, I, I can't tell you necessarily tell you why we call them that. Um, and then we have a large, since we are a large fire-based EMS, we have, th- have 36 total ambulances. Um, uh, a portion of those, about 25% of those are actually part-time overtime ambulances, but they're staffed by firefighters. There can be a force part multiplier on the, on the fire ground, having two additional hands show up, uh, you know, per, per rescue. And then, and then 10 battalions. And there's two shift commanders on top of that, that kind of manage the city uh, and operate as senior advisors on the fire ground. I think something that could be mentioned here about your 66 engine companies and your light staffing, and Tony might know this, but you said you have 500 square miles and 66 engine companies. That's only about one engine company per seven and a half square miles. Oakland has 58 square miles, about 8,000 people per population density. Only 24 engines, but we have an engine every 2.3 miles. So like... You know, I look at your system and you get a couple engines out, you know, it's not like, to me, it's like a rule response. Like, you know, it's going to be a long time before an engine gets on scene. Well, it looks yeah, like so they're struggling right now with, with it. Is that why you've doubled up a couple of firehouses with like two engines in them? Um, it, part of that has been volume, uh, incident volume, as well as we, we, we call those second engines adaptive response. So essentially they are used to fill gaps in the system for training, uh, for large incidents is they become a, a essentially a mobile 
um, uh, you know, an engine company that you can actually move to another firehouse and fill in while uh, while they're out training or, you know, running large, you know, large incidents or big responses that require a lot of resources. So uh, if you uh, in the Phoenix area right now, there's a big push for staffing uh, from response times to the volume of firefighters to the to the uh, call volume. Um, uh, we, the city of Phoenix had, uh, our busiest engine company, I think was right at 6,100 runs this past year. And then, uh, guys here, by the way, these guys were the busiest. Yep. That's, uh, engine seven folks. Yeah. And then, um, they, uh, uh, we had over 50% of the department was, uh, 4,000 runs or, uh, or, uh, more, our busiest truck company uh, outran three quarters of the engine companies. So it's the system's getting busy. And over the last 10 years, the response in growing the fire department and the response system has not matched the call volume and the need that the, the community's putting on the, on the system. So they're, they're, they're busy at the political and, uh, and, and policy level with the city working on trying to figure this out. Um, uh, but as, as as always money's in the way yeah as i was getting ready for this i saw that there's some um some issues like the the union and stuff is trying to push the call volume has increased but the the the, the fire department hasn't right I've, you've added a hundred thousand calls and you and you have you've only added like one or two engines so i i get it and, and i think we're all struggling with that um especially as i mean you guys because people are moving out of other cities and moving to places where they, you know, uh, get, get a different environment and stuff. So, so here's some more of your, of your people, of your wonderful staff. I think this picture here on the right, these guys are like ex NFL players that were um, joined the fire department. Yep. Yeah. Those are, uh, that was the Super Bowl was here this, this year. So they were kind of highlighting a lot of our uh, former NFL folks that are, that work for the city and specifically for the police department and the fire department. So, yeah, so those three guys sitting there, the one on the right, uh, his brother currently plays in the NFL, and then uh, that big Mark Tucker in the middle, and uh, and I think that's Chaz Shillings on the left. They were all, uh, yeah, all, all real deal athletes and 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 really good firefighters now. Real deal athletes. What about real deal firefighters? Well, uh, they have turned into real deal firefighters. Good, good, good. All right, um, all right. Let's get down to this. Uh, November, the uh, next month. I'm sorry, this month, March, uh, we're, we are um, seeing it, it has been, what, 21 years, 20, 22, 22. 22 years since this incident happened at the Southwest supermarket. Uh, real quick, the building was built in 1956. Uh, the supermarket itself was uh, 20,000 20, square feet. It was L-shaped. It sat uh, in a strip mall with some some um, a couple of occupancies that took up the rest of that L and then it went down to the West with uh, some more occupancies as it ran down the street. Uh, typical construction, concrete block walls with panelized roof system. Um, the fire, ultimately we, we learned that the fire was, was a, an angry employee, right? That, that got fired, um, who came back and started a fire outside in some debris next to a, next to the dumpster and at the rear of the building. Uh, that day, apparently there was a windy day, which caused that fire to get pushed into the building. And as we know with some of these buildings, right, you have a void space above 
the drop ceiling. So we had some of that stuff going on with um, the, eventually got to the stock in the building. A single, it went out as a single engine response, which was engine 24, which was, this was actually engine 14's area, but they were out of service with some routine maintenance during the day. As things happen, uh, they were they were going in service about the same time that the call was was struck and the incident came out. So they were able to add on uh, and respond to this. Uh, one thing I was reading, there was, I guess, a, a hazmat unit was in the area. Yeah, I think one of our hazmat support trucks had was either returning from a call or they were coming back from our special operations uh, training and uh, was in the general area when they that that's a single it's a single uh, person resource that's actually attached to an engine company. Um, and he had been out and about uh, that, I think, was here fairly early. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, because it did say person. Right. And it talked a little bit about him, how he kind of upgraded the response, got there. And it didn't seem like he had a company. So I get you. He's a, a single resource. Mm -hmm. So if you want to take over and uh, talk about um, where this goes from here. Yeah. So um, uh, as you said, uh, single engine, engine 24 gets the initial dispatch. 14 actually hears the dispatch as they're returning from the shop. And they uh, they add on. Uh, battalion three, which is the, 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 was the battalion chief of the West Valley at this time, they actually had heard the dispatch and looked in that general direction. They were a little bit, uh, North and West of this, uh, of this location and they could actually see smoke. So they started heading that way. And then at some point it was, uh, balanced to a, a, a structural response. Um, so adding an additional engine and a truck company, um, which was normal, uh, in that, in that time. And um, the, as you said, the fire had been purposely set on the outside of the building in some, uh, uh, um, in some cardboard, some stacked up cardboard on the outside. It had uh, ultimately we learned that it had, yeah, exactly where your where your cursor is. It had extended up into the uh, the trust space um, above the storage room. And then um, the both the man door and the small roll-up door here, or I think, excuse me, it's two man doors back here, were open. And this was also the windward side. So we were looking at 10 to 20 mile an hour winds from that, from the Southwest. It was a warm day for March. It was in, if I remember right, it was in the low nineties, which is warm here for it, for uh, um, March anyway. Um, and, uh, and so it was almost like primed, uh, uh, conditions for this to, uh, um, to extend up into the, uh, into the store engine 24 ended up stretching their line back here, started dealing with the fire on the exterior of the building, which, uh, um, you know, we know now is, is, is a, is a, is a smart tactic. Um, and then as engine 24, uh, or excuse me, as engine 14 and, and then ultimately engine three arrive, they uh, decide that they're going to come in from uh, the front of the building or the, the alpha side of the building. And this is that parking lot. This is the glass front here of the grocery store. There are two occupancies here that kind of fill out this, this, this rectangle. Um, they are, but they do not communicate in any way into the, the storage area of the grocery store or into the, the main area of the grocery store. There was an ACE hardware here. And then there was a beauty, uh, beauty salon here. 
Um, those first initial companies that show up here on the front side, they actually make access in there thinking that they they go all the way through and they're actually the exposures for this fire. Um, and they quickly realize, now nah, this isn't this isn't communicating into this is not where we need to be. We're not in the grocery store and this isn't the area um, that's being exposed to the fire. So they, they, they come out and they pull their lines into the main po portion of the, the grocery store. Um, by all reports, the, uh, the conditions are uh, light smoke at the, at the highest levels of the ceiling. I'm going to take a guess at, at 25 foot ceiling height here based on the photographs. And for what I remembered, I, I was in this building, like, I don't know, 30 days before this on a, on an EMS run, um, and, and knew it well, the community knew it well. And, uh, so light haze at the top, they work their way back here and encounter some, uh, some, a considerable more smoke. Um, it was, uh, um, kind of, uh, uh, divided here by those those hanging plastic dividers that you know keeping keeping the the storage area and the grocery store separate um so it was kind of holding the smoke in back here as they get back here they uh start trying to figure out exactly where the fire is there isn't great information that at least that I'm privy to or understand about how much water was flown in there um the my suspicion is not a lot um, at, uh, there were ultimately only two hand lines inside the building and they were both inch and three quarter. Um, I can tell you from what I knew about the Phoenix fire department then, and what I know about it now, um, it was likely under pumped for the equipment we have. So I'm guessing, uh, if they were flowing water, they were flowing water in the, in the area of 125 gallons a minute. Um, we had just moved from inch and a half to inch and three quarter at this point. And I, we, you know, I don't think we were, we were quite savvy as to what we needed to be doing from a water volume standpoint. There was some event that occurred in there that, that drastically changed the conditions and where the conditions in the main grocery store went from really tenable, easy to walk around, little light smoke to serious developing smoke uh, um, considerable amount of heat and where the visibility became almost zero, even down at the ground. Um, they had put a, a fair amount of hose line into that, into the building, you know, trying to give them enough uh, line to get back to where they needed to go. And it created this, this, this spaghetti, this mess of hose here in the front of this. And once the conditions changed, they lose track a little bit of time. Um, and the first indication that, that Brett Tarver has that he needs to leave is his low air alarm is going off. And um, as that low air alarm starts going off, they are uh, um, a little bit separated on the line. They got, excuse me, separated from the line. So they start to reorient themselves, work their way back to the line. He's uh, getting low uh, or his, his, his low air alarms continuing to go off and ultimately decides to call a mayday. Um, and is actually gives a fairly clear, concise, effective mayday of what, where he is and, and what is going on. And then at that point, they start trying to lead him out of the building. And there's multiple folks that end up, you know, being in contact with Brett, both from engine engine 14 and engine three, and then other subsequent arriving engines to get him out. And um, he ultimately ends up running out of air, uh, removing his mask. And um, there is kind of a frantic period here 
um, during that event where multiple companies are actually trying to, when he's conscious and moving around, trying to coax him back to the line. Uh, they actually got him back to the line multiple times, but at this point he had been breathing smoke, um, was pretty hypoxic, um, starts making really erratic decisions and actually uh, becomes fairly combative and, and, and they are unable to get him uh, coming out of the, uh, to come out of the building. When he's ultimately found, um, he uh, essentially only has his bunker pants and T-shirt on. His coat is off. His uh, helmet is off. His mask is off. His bottle is off. And um, uh, and that's the way he ends up being moved out of the building. So initially, they had been trying to bring him out on the lines that, that came in from that the front side, the alpha side. And then as they got, had an idea of where he is, he was actually in this meat cutting area um when when he became unconscious um and then crews began working in from this these entrances from the south to be able to get him and then move him uh towards the south to, to come out of the building um this whole back area was full of grocery store stock um you know some of it stacked you know uh, firefighter high and it became a really difficult operation moving him out of the building he's like a 300 pound uh, a wet bag of jello that just is incredibly difficult to move. They, they said multiple times, it just felt like he was nailed to the floor. Um, and then, uh, so I think it was a total of six companies uh, had their hands on him from the, from that South side, ultimately being removed by engine six and ladder one um, uh, to the exterior during that time. And during the rescue, there were a total of 12 additional maydays. Um, by individuals who had been working inside the building to get him out. Multiple folks were running out of air. And it wasn't until um, we put a, a sector boss or a division boss, you know, we would call it now, in place here on the south side. We really had companies working uh, free will in and out of the building, self-assigning, um, trying to manage this rescue. Um, so John Thomason uh, comes out of the building uh, in respiratory arrest, um, and uh, fortunately, uh, is 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 revived. He's actually still on the job today. John and I worked together right up until till I left. Um, and then multiple other folks inside that building were on the verge of uh, uh, losing consciousness and respiratory arrest as they're as they're making their way out of the building, just simply from working on attempting to remove him. So we've got a you know an overall elapsed time. Uh, of when engine 24 arrives at, at that 1654 time period till about 20 after uh, uh, six, um, he's removed from the building. So if you that's a that's a considerable amount of time. Um, I know in the evaluations and in talking with you know multiple folks, the the guy who's the 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 senior advisor for this incident is a really close friend of mine. The guy that was a support officer for this incident is a close friend of mine. Um, and they are completely dumbfounded and amazed that that roof remained intact for the entirety of this event and that we did not kill anybody else. We, we darn near did, but we, we didn't ultimately have a dozen firefighters die because of, because of the conditions and because of the lack of, um, I'll say, uh, effective management of how the rescue was going at that point. So, uh, so this picture here at the bottom right. Right. Is the rescue going on at this point? Uh, that or should is... I say was during the rescue were the conditions like this? Were there conditions like this in the main part of the supermarket? 
Yeah. So one of the things, and and we're going to, we're going to get into it. We've got the, we've got the right guys to discuss this here is, uh, and and you can even uh, read in the report. So let me, let me reference a report. So the Phoenix fire department uh, under the leadership of Alan Bernicini immediately after this event said, we're going to figure this out and, and took complete ownership of it and said, we are going to solve not only what happened, but why this happened. And we are not going to have this happen again. So over the next year, with through through a, a you know a well orchestrated process, we developed this report that actually gets uh, published uh, two days shy of the one year anniversary. And in that report, in the back end of that, there is some recommendations um, from that, and um, and and some of those recommendations are rock solid today. That that I we we absolutely got right, and some of them we absolutely did not understand ventilation. And so what we recommended after this was more ventilation. And what actually occurred at this incident is during the rescue, um, we had truck companies take out virtually all the glass on the front of this grocery store, as well as a, a, a truck company on the roof attempting to just put in as many ventilation holes as they possibly could till they just couldn't ventilate anymore all under this idea and auspice that we were somehow going to improve the conditions by increasing the ventilation. And, and what we know now is in drastically increasing the, the exhaust uh, uh, openings of, of this building. And, and we got that thing to flash over. We got the main compartment of the grocery store, you know, uh, what, two, or I'll say three quarters to, to 80% of that grocery store that's uh, the main part of the grocery store to flash over while we're working to get him out of the back um, storage area um, that had not flashed over at that point. So uh, that was definitely, it was the inlet side that they were working from. Um, they had that going for them, uh, doing the rescue with the wind at their back. Um, but it was creating, ultimately created that, those flashover conditions there in the front main part of the grocery store. So most of the effort was concentrated three foot wide steel man door and the six foot wide steel roll up door. Is that where the Correct. rescue was, was happening? Yeah. The rescue. So like you say, actually, this was the, yeah. The, the rescue is actually being managed through the three foot uh, man door. Um, uh, there's actually some really good video that I can share uh, online uh, uh, that's a publicly available online of what was actually going on in the back there. Most everything was being done through that man door um, with companies in and out. And uh, and essentially they were down to the last two companies like he's either coming out now or we're, we've got to stop because this, this building is not going to tolerate this uh, much longer. So, so take, let's talk about that. Cause I was struck by this too. I, when I went to, when I went to Phoenix for the blue card thing and, and uh, Nick Runacini obviously was, was big there and, and he spoke and he was, he says, I guess that, that, uh, it's that same thing, which you said, which other people have apparently said is more people should have died, right? That, that roof should have collapsed, which that was a, over an hour worth of a uh, of firefight. Now I know that the fire wasn't, burning fiercely in that area for an hour, but definitely, right. We had a 20 minute rule back then. Oh. We had a 20 minute rule that we would not operate for longer than that. If in that kind of scenario, and you guys were able to, I guess, able to get an hour or more with fierce fire conditions did. So the roof ultimately did come down. Yes. Yep. How much yeah. longer it was within five minutes, if I remember correctly, in the timeline, within five minutes of his removal. 
it was yeah it was no more than 10 minutes um uh after that so it was um and and so much like some of the stuff we want dennis and, and keith and i wanted to talk about for you know what's going on today is there was not a lot of firefighting going on during the rescue it wasn't as if large uh, diameter hand lines were in place trying to protect that space back there. There literally had been two inch and three quarter hand lines stretched in that. And I'm not certain. Well, I feel confident during the rescue, neither one of those hand lines were manned. We were simply trying to get him out of the building uh, through those means. And the use of hand lines for protection and the use of hand lines to, to try and uh, improve the conditions in that back storage area just simply wasn't occurring uh all right so you talk about the recovery um i think a lot, again if uh, we we all that have been around for a while know you know some of the things that we that the numbers that came out right 20 24 people to rescue one firefighter uh, with that there'll be maydays within it it's going to take a long time rapid intervention isn't rapid um one of the things that I that I saw that that people talked about was a Tarver drill. Can you touch on a Tarver drill? Yeah, so it was actually something that uh, we put in place in recruit training because it had never crossed our minds that uh, attempting to rescue one of our own would be as difficult. I, I think I think the simplest way is is if one of to say is if one of us went down, we had the mindset, obviously not a, a mindset, you know, what we know now that was based in any level of reality that somebody went down, we were going to pick them up and take them out. And it wasn't going to be that big of a deal. And that's, you know, that's, that's what we were going to do. We learned that that's not reasonable. And that's not the way this occurred. So the idea with the Tarver drill is to at least present a little, a little bit of experience with sig significant conditions, dark conditions. Um, it's difficult to, we don't do this under fire conditions. So it's, it's difficult to introduce the heat part of that, but um, a firefighter that you truly in low visibility have to locate package, maybe at first might be a little bit combative or a little bit resistive to to being rescued and then ultimately pa packaging them them up and then removing them from the building in a in a manner in which it takes multiple companies so there's actually a a pass off and a handoff and communication from crews on the inside and the uh, or coming from the outside in to remove him or to remove the victim and uh, idea of a natural help order. So the first person that's going to try and solve a mayday if they can is the individual that called it. They're going to start working on managing themselves. Then, then secondarily, that person's crew, they are going to likely respond to the mayday and try and, try and support them. The crew's working around them in that interior position. And, and then last, the last group in that in that help order is is from the outside in to maximize that that help order in trying to solve maydays that none of it is rapid and none of it none of it has any guarantee of success um but maybe that does improve it and and like i said project mayday has proved that now it's over 90 percent of maydays are actually resolved by crews already inside the building um with less than 10 percent of them coming from the exterior so um the, the prevention part of it, and then having a, a reasonable understanding of that natural help order, when it happens, it becomes a pretty big deal. 
So the natural help order, you know, when someone hears a mayday on the fire ground and, uh, and you're like, how can I be part of this natural help order? I think the new engine book uh, that uh, Lieutenant McCormick was heavily involved with and the FDNY, and it's in the residential section, but this kind of is a alarm bell for me in these commercial buildings. It says, you know, when there is a true mayday occur uh, or or an, or a loss of water, for example, I think it's that's the way it's worded in there. For like an engine mayday uh, that's not a personnel mayday, you mayday, lose, lose water. water. It says, it says no, no additional, additional ventilation ventilate. shall take place. Um, I'm thinking, you know, again, we talk about commercial and residential and volumes and stuff really aren't discussed. Like the Tumulani Duny death in Oakland was in a 1600 square foot bar with, with residential on top. It'll still be described as a traumatic line of duty death that occurred in a commercial building with 1600 square feet. Maybe you could do more aggressive ventilation in there with some water flowing where it might help visibility or something. But it, it's funny that these mayday discussions are almost always an absence of water supply or suppression. And to me, suppression supports the rescue uh of the civilian and suppression supports the mayday you know like it's and ventilation you can easily grow a fire with ventilation so i'll chime in here real quick i think one of the interesting things to point out is that uh the national institute of standards and technology nist at the time right was actually planning on coming to the phoenix area to do research in commercial or large volume spaces if you will uh at that time. Uh, so much of an unfortunate coincidence that I believe uh, Dan Madrakowski actually got on the ground in Phoenix, either the day of or day before uh, this event took place. Um, so it's kind of ironic in that sense and that it ended up putting off the testing, I think for about a year, maybe to a year and a half after that. Uh, and again, those tests were focused more on structural collapse at the time for an ordinary construction warehouse. Um, but, you know, it's just kind of an is interesting thing to point out that those tests that occurred at that time were not as a result of this event. Uh, they were actually happening, you know, or intended to happen simultaneous with. Um, so just throwing that out for the group. But one thing I think uh, that's worth pointing out to kind of take our conversation in one of two ways here is that, uh, you know, we all hear that you don't take the residential mindset into the commercial environment. Right now, there's a there's a couple different reasons for that. Typically, the structure itself is what's dictating that, but it's because the structure itself can drive different fire behavior, and then therefore that different fire behavior, due to the structural changes, will require a change in tactics, uh, whether it be suppression and/or ventilation. Uh, so I guess I'll I'll open up the the, the discussion for that. Uh, in terms of talking about the difference in fire behavior and then therefore the difference in suppression and ventilation. Uh, so let me let me add before, before we get too far into that, uh, I would like to add that that the, the the what we got out of this, right because because the fire didn't have necessarily an impact on bread the compartment. You flashed over the supermarket compartment. But what we got from this was 24 minutes, uh, a lot of guys to rescue. So we got that, right? So, I, I mean, 
so so the delay there was if 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 he had died in the flashover in the supermarket we would be we would have done this we would have already right phoenix would have then researched fires in commercial buildings so i i mean i guess you know the 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 what we're learning now is typically we are reactive fire service so what we got out of out of the Southwest supermarket was writ things, right? Was firefighter rescue things, which then um, we didn't get. So we, we're just now learning. We're just now learning. So we probably got lucky there from, from Brett Tarver to, to now where we're learning some of these things. We didn't get lucky because we, a lot of firefighters have died in commercial buildings. Right. And, and we didn't, we didn't take the time to learn about that. So now Right. We, we still thought about that. And I, I'll go back to the May Day Monday that we did last June about um, about South, the, the um, so, Super Sofa Superstore in Charleston. And, you know, that was several years after Brett Tarver. And again, the, what we learned from Brett Tarver didn't impact that fire because we learned about rap, rapid intervention things. We didn't learn about commercial building fires. So the, the, what happened in Charleston now kind of pushed us to study commercial building fires. And here we are now, right? Again, we can look at some, some incidents that have happened since then, because we still, we're still seeing these firefighters dying in, in the commercial building setting. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, and I think that even, even UL can't give us uh, all we need to know, right? Because the stuff that we did in Ohio was more of fact finding of, of, of starting the conversation, right? Because we didn't look really at fire attack. We looked at ventilation. So, so we're still, we're still kind of behind this. And that's why I, I mean, I, and I know, you know, Dennis and I, and all of us have talked about, you know, yeah, yeah, we can say we go to commercial building fires, right? These fire departments, again, I, I come from a, a, a pretty busy place where we went to commercial building fires, but it was a, it was a fire in a in a bodega, or it was a fire in a in a in a liquor store that was twenty feet wide by forty feet deep, right? So when we did do the residential tactics on that commercial building, we got away with it. So yeah, it's, all, it's almost like you should call it small volume tactics, medium volume tactics, large volume tactics, and then ultra large volume tactics, which you know. The only reason these really big buildings are allowed to exist in society is fire protection engineering, engineering and frankly sprinkling these buildings. And I believe this is an example of a building that was constructed before um, a building of this size would require sprinklers all over the country. And when you look at these deaths that occur in these strip mall units, uh, so I'll just bring up to you the Porterville incident in 2020. Uh, I think it was in February and the Deem incident in 2017 in San Antonio, Texas. These are another, another examples, examples of unsprinklered uh, commercial space. And we have a huge era in the United States, you know, like probably up into the 70s where we have these like ticking time bombs in these communities. And you go to the barbershop fire, you go to the auto body fire. Uh, you have these winds that are giving you a bias that these fires are going to be easily tackled. And, you know, one of the things that I try to tell uh, that should be an incident commander's mindset, most residential buildings in a lot of America are unsprinklered. 
And if you're going to a commercial building and it's not sprinkler, most commercial buildings in America are sprinkler. That's the first flag. <laughs> the, the nearest nozzle is not on the job, right? All the new... All the new commercial buildings have a nozzleman already assigned, you know, to go off when the fire occurs. So that should be the first red flag that we're going to have to treat this different than a private dwelling fire. Well, Dennis, I think you bring up a good point that uh, commercial is not commercial is not commercial, right? And that a single story, 15 foot wide by 45 foot deep deli with a... Uh, two-story wood frame apartment on top of it. It's not the same as a 40 by 90 commercial strip mall with a 15 foot ceiling uh, and a drop ceiling below that, which is not the same as a Home Depot, which is not the same as an Amazon warehouse, right? And one of the ways that we've tried to differentiate this uh, in starting to explore this in the research arena is based on volume size, right? So square footage certainly plays a role. Uh, but just as important as that would be the ceiling height and then ceiling type, right? So ceiling height, meaning how much from the floor to the drop ceiling versus how much from the floor to the deck itself uh, versus how much from the top of the entry door, for example, to the, to the deck itself, uh, you know, and then obviously ceiling type uh, getting further then into the tactics, driving what type of suppression method you would need. Um, but I think it's definitely worth bringing up and talking about commercial is not commercial is not commercial. And it probably should be less about the occupancy and more about the square footage and volume of the space. So is that because, is that really because of the, the amount of gas that can fill that area, right? I guess, again, I, I mean by fire gases, right? Because that's the real killer, right? I mean, the contents, yes, are going to burn, but whatever it burns in there is going to produce this fire gas, which is then going to be, you know, can be um, a couple temperatures away from, or a couple, couple of, of, of percentages away from its, its explosive limits to being too rich or too lean to burn. Right. So <clears throat> on that note, basically the larger the square footage and the higher the ceiling height, which again would drive a larger volume, the fire can basically start to outpace the ventilation it has available, right? So the fire is growing at a faster rate and approaching flashover of a certain spot within that opening or within that open space before it ever really knows it's in a building, right? So if you want, I'll go ahead and share my screen. Uh, if you want to drop down that and I'll go ahead and share. So while he's talking or looking for the slide he's looking for, I think there's several advantages to me being a wildland firefighter before becoming a structural firefighter. And one of the things that I learned is that I want to apply water to preheated fuel. So if I'm walking through grass, I want to use my water to create a defensible space before I get to the spot of fire. And I kind of look at these commercial large volume fires as it's a grass field that that exists inside some sort of volume right so like so you, it's like a fuel package that doesn't realize it's inside a compartment so you can have a fuel spread fire that essentially consumes its ability oxygen wise and now you have this ticking time bomb that's in there that where the majority of the grass is preheated 
and the the grenade's been set and the pin's been pulled and essentially poking holes at it without applying water is setting up for like a rapid, not a flashover, but like a flame front that could move through there much quicker than a firefighter could self-evacuate. But um, I think Keith was going to get into this in a more scientific way. Yeah. So, I mean, just to comment quick on what you referenced, you know, in specifically some of the testing that we did, we noticed that, you know, if we started the fire towards the rear of the building, uh, and again, in these large volume spaces, the fire grew and spread, increased both temperature and pressure, again, before it ever knew it was in a structure, um, that that rapid fire growth would move towards basically wherever that ventilation opening is, right? So you almost had a traveling fire that flashed over a portion of a large open volume and then moved towards wherever that ventilation was. So uh, just give me a quick head nod. You guys can see the slide up on the screen. All right, so you know this was some of the preliminary testing that we did. This was in Ohio. Uh, this was taking a look at a single story strip mall, uh, fairly common construction type uh, for quite a bit of areas around the country. Um, we've got CMU block walls on the exterior, you know, on the Bravo, Charlie and Delta sides, um, different occupancies divided throughout, uh, some with ceilings that went to the drop ceiling, some with ceilings that went up to the deck. Um, and then we've got lightweight bar joists and uh, corrugated metal decking with a rubber membrane insulated roof on top. So this is just kind of a look at the structure itself. Uh, the video I'm getting ready to pull up, if you can see the mouse on the screen, we're looking down here at the bottom left of the strip mall. Uh, this was one of the double occupancy units. And what I mean by that is most of the occupancies we looked at within that strip mall were roughly about 30 foot wide by 70 foot deep or so. So this was one where it was a double wide and we were about 70 by 70 or 70 by 80. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, there's certainly buildings out there with a lot larger volumes. We're not on the scale of a Home Depot and certainly not, you know, these uh, these super warehouses that we have now, uh, but decent volume nonetheless. And uh, we kind of had a surprise of our own as the fire started to grow and spread in the building and uh, picked up on some fire phenomena that you wouldn't necessarily see uh, in the residential. And this is where we kind of got a first look at uh, how and why fire behavior in large volume spaces, again, not necessarily commercial, but large volume, uh, would differ than residential. So as this video starts out, just for orientation's sake, video in the top left, again, is from the helmet of a firefighter on the alpha side. You're looking at the alpha side door there to that unit that's towards the upper right of that video view. You can probably see the orange flames inside there towards the top of that window. So that is a fire that was ignited in the rear of the building. If you're taking a look at that space as a giant square, uh, the fire would have been ignited in the Charlie Quadrant. And the ventilation, uh, ventilation opening is a single width doorway on the Alpha side that is located towards the Alpha Quadrant, so not necessarily center. As that fire grows and spreads in the space, we've got the smoke filling high within that compartment. Again, we've got a drop ceiling, but then there's probably about four to five foot above the drop ceiling before the actual deck. So that fire is continuing to grow and spread, right? Because that smoke layer is not dropped down to start inhibiting its growth yet. At that point, you've got temperatures and pressures rapidly increasing. You can see the neutral plane in the doorway to the bottom below start to rapidly drop 
and we've got unidirectional exhaust out of this entire occupancy, right? For a period of probably 45 to 50 seconds. And you can see that we didn't necessarily park in the best of spots out front. We obviously <laughs> didn't know this was gonna happen, but that's a good 75 foot to 80 foot away from that entry point, right? And you see this pressure event. You can see the pressure chart on the bottom right. Uh, pressures and temperatures are directly related, right? So as temperatures are increasing, pressures are increasing. But you see that these pressures increase all the way up and come close to maxing out our sensors here, right as that layer is dropping down and hits the floor of the occupancy. So where does this get us? It's get, this gets us to the fact that the fire basically doesn't know it's within a structure until that layer's at the floor and it has no more air to pull from. So again, we've basically flashed over a portion of that space and then walked that fire to the front of the building at the same time as that neutral plane is rapidly dropping Right, because we've got a larger distance now between the top of that door and where the ceiling deck is compared to a residential. Right, your common residential ceilings are eight to nine feet, right? And you've got a doorway that might be seven foot tall. So you're only looking at a gap above that, but between one to two feet potentially. Right, so that smoke layer that accumulates is going to impact that fire a lot sooner in the residential environment than in the commercial or in the large volume. So this lends us to some fire behavior phenomenon that we don't see in the residential environment, independent of tactics whatsoever, right? So depending on the size of the space, what's burning and what ventilation is available, this event is gonna happen at some point in the incident. It's just a matter of whether or not you get there before it, during it, or after it. And we need to be cognizant of picking up size up cues to determine whether or not it's already happened, right? So that pressure event itself, once that's <clears throat> included, the fire now knows it's within a building and therefore we return to, you know, what you would consider kind of more normal fire behavior, right? We've got hot smoke uh, and fuel exhausting out high and fresh air being drawn in low and smoke emanating from the rest of the building. But so since fire is a game of pressure, you know, in, in, inside one of these buildings or one of these uh, larger spaces, um, if a fire happens at night and there is no man door open or anything, and you're essentially, you know, your access ventilation, for lack of a better term, is the first real breath into your investigating mode when you're trying to find the uh, seat of the fire. Um, let's say you open the commercial, commercial and there is a smoke condition in there. And uh, you kind of feel like the fire's in this back corner. Like, let's say it's just in the Charlie Delta side. And let's say, for uh, clarity's sakes, Chris, that the building's no deeper than 150 feet. So there's really no reason to go around to the other side uh, to get to a closer access point. Um, door control in the residential setting, to me, when the hand line goes through the door, uh, I am very... I am one of the people in private dwelling think there's almost no good time to do door control if you have a charged hand line going through the door, except for wind impact and going to the floor below and some other red flags. To me, we haven't really talked about this in the commercial. To me, um, this event has occurred. The fire has entered some sort of decay and the gas pedal of the door here to me can be high horsepower very significant like it you leaving that door opens like smashing your foot on the accelerator and leaving it down uh and your handline might not have enough suppressive capacity to deal with the end result is that crazy talk keith or does that make sense 
No, I mean, it completely makes sense. So let me hit you back with a couple of things. I'll talk on the door control real quick first. Uh, so just so everybody's on the same page, what Dennis is talking about here is that uh, door control in the residential environment really has a place when you don't know where the fire is located, right? So you pull up and you've got a residential home that is showing smoke from every orifice, but you've got no fire present and you are inside trying to figure out where it is. Door control is obviously imperative there. You're not trying to add more fuel to the fire. Limit that ventilation, figure out what's going on, use your thermal imagers and go. When you know where that fire is located, you want that door fully open, right? Because as we talk about suppression in the residential arena, we're focused on flowing and moving, taking control of space, bringing in fresh air behind the line, improving visibility and survivability. And therefore you don't wanna choke that fresh air intake off. Right, so when the bale is open, the door should be open, basically. In the commercial space, you know, door control would go along with differences in tactics with suppression, right? For suppression in the commercial environment, we're not focused on taking space to make space and improving survivability behind the line. We're focused on trying to figure out how we can get water to burning surfaces, right? So I don't want to dive too much into suppression yet while we're still talking about fire behavior, but Door control in this environment, again, and not just door control, but limiting ventilation uh, is key so that we have the time and the ability to get water on what's burning. So now that we covered door control, let me bring up this video real quick. In Dennis's scenario of a fire in a closed occupancy, all right, so the front door is closed, could be daytime, could be nighttime. Uh, that fire has grown and spread throughout the building, the layer is accumulated. At some point it is dropped to the floor and you've got a smoke condition throughout, right? So if that layer is dropped to the floor, it's already gone through its pressure event. So this video I'm about to play here is actually from earlier in the series before the last one I played, we hadn't put two and two together that what happened here was the same phenomenon we saw later. But what you're seeing now is smoke emanating from around the HVAC units on the roof, some leakage from around the, uh, the deck area up top, and the fire is in the basically center of this structure, echo quadrant, but towards the rear. And what you can see right here is the smoke starts coming out the front of the building. The pressure within inside that space actually grew at a quick enough rate and reached a high enough value that it depressed the panic bar on the front door of this occupancy, opened the door to that space, and basically burped itself. Right, so as that fire grew and spread, temperatures increased, pressures increased. As the pressures increased, right, they started to expand. They opened that door. It took its breath, basically, of exhaust, started to relieve itself. But then immediately that layer hit the floor. It started to be ventilation limited again, and then we came up and re-secured the door. So the thing I'll finish up with here is once we had reclosed that door, we waited for about another 15 minutes before we ever did anything. Again, this was one of our baselines, right? What's the fire doing in this building independent of us? So we waited about another 15 minutes, watched the temperatures drop off, watched the pressures drop off, waited until things looked about as cool and uh, non-eventful as they could be, right? And then we introduced ventilation into that space by opening that front door. No other openings throughout, we opened that front door and within about two to three minutes thereafter, we started to see temperature increase again back where that fire originated from. So, you know, it's kind of twofold here. We want to be limiting, we want to be limiting ventilation. 
we need to be cognizant of when we're coming into this and whether or not that pressure event has already happened. Uh, and then be aware of the fact that even if it's been a period of time, uh, that there still may be some juice in the building uh, to be able to support further fire growth. So would, so would it be safe to say then that the only reason to ventilate, open the front door in this instance, is to flow water? So the plan should be you're flowing water as quickly as possible once the, you've created that that ventilation opening on the front. There shouldn't be any a period here where we're opening just to see what happens. We should be opening it for 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 a distinct purpose of attempting to change that environment with with an appropriate volume of water early on and then try to minimize the what what's actually happening in there. Am I, am I connecting that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I would say it's not just uh, access to the front door, right? It would be any type of ventilation period, whether that's ventilation of the front windows, opening of a rear man door on the Charlie side to get look into the occupancy, uh, that that should come with water application, right? So there are some fire behavior similarities that come from residential into commercial, right? And it's because they're physics driven, right? These are this is facts, not opinion. And that is that if you take a fire that is ventilation limited and provide it more ventilation, you will experience fire growth. So those kind of principles carry from residential to commercial. We just need to respond to them differently. Right. And when we make that ventilation opening and apply water, it's not apply water and take all the windows as we go, like it might be in the residential setting as we're trying to improve survivability. Right. We're dealing with a problem now where we need to figure out how to get water on what's burning where the structure is fighting against us. So let's this is an interesting point here. And Keith might remember this from the setup. I happen to be at some of these burns and, uh, you know, like. This is a non-commercial fire, but let's think about the Back Bay fire in Boston and the Board of Inquiry there. They said, oh, it was wind impacted from the Charlie side. We didn't have a really good engine back there early. Uh, one of the responses the Boston Fire Department had to that globally in their system was to add an earlier engine to alleyway fires uh, in their thing. Now, Tony's nodding his head because DC's an alleyway uh city and they always get an engine actually two engines are to the address side so when we were setting up the safety line here you know it was a little hard to get an engine back there but if you're a fire protection engineer you'll notice a lot of times they put hydrants back there and the small outlet on a hydrant is called the hose outlet and i went over there and measured the pressure on the on the on the uh back hydrant and i said hey all we need is three lengths of two and a half back here and a nozzle, and we're going to get a great fire stream off this hydrant is a safety line here on the Charlie side. So um, one of the things I think globally has to be discussed in commercial buildings is that these fires, when smoke occurs, the property loss has already occurred. So we don't have to worry about flowing water and causing additional damage. And water that wets preheated fuel basically takes it out of the equation as far as it going to burn again in the same way. So I look at strip mall fires where there's always that loading dock in the back or whatever, and you'll see a normal response from a suburb or urban fire department. All the engines are piling up in the parking lot and everybody's trying to go through the front doors. And I'm just like, that's a complete misallocation of apparatus on this type of fire ground. Like it's, it's perfectly okay 
to have fire streams cross. Um, and by the way, the loading dock area of warehouses are usually the place that you have the greatest access to a lot of, if the fire's back in a loading dock area, you shouldn't come through the front door. That doesn't mean you can't, you not, you shouldn't investigate that. So um, stuff like cutting the roll up door and doing that fancy cut and cutting the slats out and then letting it roll all the way up. We probably shouldn't be doing stuff like that. You can't control that after you've done it. We should be forcing man doors like gentlemen and peeking in with ticks and lines and determining how we're going to take some of the fuel off the table. Ultimately, once you take the fuel off the table, then you can change the vent profile and get better visibility and all that kind of stuff. Thoughts? Yeah, so I think this this is a uh, a suppression game about how you can get best access with water. Right. So in the residential environment, we struggle to keep water close to us. Right. Even with an inch and a half with 150 GPM or so, uh, we struggle to keep water close. In the commercial environment, we struggle to get water far. And again, I guess I should clarify, not necessarily commercial, but large volume. Right. So the building is fighting against us there. We struggle to get water deep into the space. So the first thing we need to be doing is figuring out where our best access is to apply water to that fire. And if we're pulling up on the alpha side and we make entry through the man door and we're looking with the thermal imager and we've got floor to ceiling smoke, but no evidence of where the fire is, limit your ventilation and find a different entry point, right? And the only reason that line size might matter in large volumes is because larger flow is going to drive higher velocity, is going to drive further reach, therefore droplets might be larger and might get further in the space. All right. So in the residential environment, we're focused on stream manipulation to basically create a door for ourselves and march forward into that space until the fire's out. In the commercial environment, we're trying to figure out how to get those droplets coming out of the end of the nozzle to survive the environment and get to burning surfaces. So when we're dealing with structures like you see up on the screen at a commercial strip mall, when we've got bar joists, a drop ceiling, corrugated metal decking, uh, utilities, you know, in the form of HVAC or what have you up at that ceiling area, every one of those things is going to inhibit water from getting further into the space. So as that water gets up into that environment, every single thing it hits off of, it's going to deflect off of and drop to the floor, right? In residential firefighting, we take advantage of the fact that our surfaces are flat. Even if it's a vaulted roof or a pitched roof, Right, the surfaces are flat and therefore the water will ride and go to the depth of the space because it's a manageable space with a reasonable ceiling height and we can cool it rapidly. In these, we fight that. So Dennis, you wanna talk potentially maybe about some thoughts we have about sweeping and, and why the suppression tactics might need to change? Yeah, so you know, to me, these are obviously volumes in spaces that uh, don't lend well to you're not going to, you can basically manipulate a pattern in all directions inside a small volume compartment in a residence and get global cooling and superiority. So globalized lift, you know, and I, I think I, you might remember the video I sent in to the fire attack study. One of the comments I got back was no discernible pattern. And I was like, do you really need a pattern? You're just trying to beat the shit out of every surface in here. And 
my experience in really bad residential fire is super low vis visibility. And I don't want people guessing if you're near the fire, hey, is it the couch on fire or the bed on fire? I'm like, there's enough water in the line to take care of all of this at once. So like, you know, I'll, I'll worry about aiming once I have a better idea what's on fire. I think here in the commercial thing, you have to put some deeper thought into the way your water is going to interact in this space. So I, I made a note here, building geometry. Like I just taught a commercial application class uh, outside of, uh, where was I? I was outside of Seattle uh, at the end of December. And the building we had was narrow on two sides and had a really wide side. It was like an auto body shop with multiple bay doors. And they happened to have man doors on each end. So I did like this size up deal with the uh, responding companies. Hey, where are you going to go? And they're like, well, where's a fire in the building? And I see. I said, you don't know. No trick question. But there is a fire in that building. You know, where do you want to look first? You're an engine company coming in and they they see the roll ups along the A side, which is wide. And there's a man door dead center. It's the trap. It's an uncompartment space. If you open that door and the fires to your right or left or everywhere, you got to split your suppression water, right? I wanted them to choose one of the end man doors. And on one side, the hydrant was right there. I was like, well, I'd park on the hydrant and stretch my line to this door because from this narrow end, if I get in there, I sweep it with a tick and I see that there's some fire in there. Even if it's on the far side, I can start applying water and because it's a narrow box, I can do a Z, right? My stream's longer than wide, and I can work my way down to the floor, not spend too much time up into the overhead and trying to get the fuel package wet. And then as that first new officer, I could get on the radio, and I could direct engine two to the Bravo side. I'm on the AD corner. They could be on the AB corner, do the same man door on the other side of the building. Now we have two streams that are going to reach to the center and wet all the fuel comp contents. And now I can get on the radio and tell one of the truck companies to take one of the roll-ups or open that center door, right? So building geometry, the way an O, when you run an O into a, so if I took that middle door and it was a deep building, an O pattern is gonna let you down because as you widen your O out, you're gonna forget as the water moves out in the space that there's a gigantic hole in the middle. And I'm a simplicity guy. I like squashed O's, corkscrew O's, any sort of like kind of O in a residential. In commercial and large volume spaces, I kind of like this squashed Z kind of pattern, realizing in your head that your water might be impeded by the drop stealing or purlins and beams coming down and then really spending some time on the floor, maybe half bailing, advancing 10 feet forward and then repeating, right? And then not, not thinking that you can't have a line from the other side, right? The other thing that's very important in these commercial structures is that if you're in the parking lot and you have this set of glass that is emanating fire, right? A lot of people will get right up close, maybe even heat up their gear, or maybe they might even need to be on air, and their water could be going in, and you're not having an impact of the vent point ignition. You're not getting anything wet near you, right? So if I was a second company officer and that line was already there, and it wasn't making any visual impact, I'd probably flake out my nozzle and line and bring my couplings forward, and I'd start like 10 feet back or 15 feet back and open my line up 
Now I have two staggered streams going in the opening. I got a stream that's wetting here and I got a stream that's going further in. And if you read like military uh, tactics around like teams and squads moving forward, they don't line them up, right? It's about covering fire and footprint of extinguishment. And, you know, I think sometimes when I see some of these commercial ground fires where they're applying a lot of water and it's not making a big difference, often I think, man, that second line needs to back up. It needs, they're not getting anything wet close to them. So the other's true. The other thing's true. If you have some success with the first line and you get a cold spot, you might want to leave that line in place and the next line up kind of moves a little bit forward. Maybe you're going to kind of leapfrog in, get a line from the other side, you know, so um, in a residential, go ahead. Can, can, no, I, I want you to keep going. I want you to build on, um, Keith kind of talked about it, like uh, the difference between the inch and three quarter reach and the two and a half reach, right? Again, it might not necessarily be about the GPM that we want, which is about about getting it deeper into the space. Right. So that the and the, and your and your uh, your feet so, per second kind of stuff. So Keith Keith's probably gonna smile here. Like one of the things that uh, we did at these uh, coordinated attack fires, the twenty five hundred square foot unit. We used an inch and three quarter line at 160. And some of that, you know, as a technical panel member, we all have our bi biases. And where we think it's important, we put our thumb on the scale. Uh, Lieutenant McCormick, Ray, put his thumb on the scale and said, hey, let's try some small line uh, suppression in some of the, the 2,000 square foot units. He was in the process of trying to allow the FDNY to use a smaller line like in the Bodega fires because they had a very big policy. You just pull the two and a half. So there's three things that you worry about with fire streams. There's volume, right? Which I think we've become a little bit volume obsessed. Um, there's placement, right? Where is the water going? And then there's velocity. So I didn't want to correct Keith when he's speaking about it, but the difference between a 265 GPM stream and 160 GPM stream in a commercial space, if they're both 50 PSI nozzles, technically the stream's leaving the nozzle at the same velocity. It's about 60 miles an hour, 85 feet per second. The reason the two and a half has a greater reach in the commercial building is because the mass of the stream's longer. So in transit, as the heat is attacking it, you have less stream degradation because there's more mass. Now there's another way to accomplish this. We could change the velocity. We could go to 200 gallons a minute at 75 PSI have the same reaction force and it might, you know, what volume might be uh, the way that we're anecdotally seeing volume is super important. And some of these structures might be related to the placement because the water gets in deeper, not necessarily the added amount of BTUs per minute that it can absorb, right? Because firefighting is about ganging a toehold. Toe it's about Fire suppression is about making a cold spot where you have a tactically redundant flow and then working the stream around. Now, I'm a big line guy, but I'm a big placement and mobility guy. And I think everybody that knows anything about the fire service knows that I invented the two and a quarter inch hose and I like an inch and eighth dip on it. That's 265. And then everyone else also knows I invented an inch and three sixteenth hose and that's 300 gallon tip. That's 300 gallons a minute out of a two and a half. I prefer the inch and an eighth flow but I didn't want to run an inch and eighth on a two and a half because I just feel you're lugging around this gigantic thing where you could easily flow more water in a reasonable reaction force, right? So, um, 
you know, I think some of the backup rules are broken. Like if a two and a half gets pulled and you get really good suppression and you have a bunch of racking that's still on fire, the appropriate backup line is not an equal or greater line. It is a smaller, more mobile line, right? So um, I don't know, Keith's not on. I heard him use inch and a half. I have no problem with inch and a half hose uh, uh, as long as it flows 150 gallons a minute in a residential house. People are focused on like size of hose as it relates to fire streams. And we kind of need to be focused on how much water are we applying? Does that system work in the stretch potential that we expect? Like to me, a true commercial hand line should be able to flow 500 feet away from a rig. So why have I never liked two inch? It's just a little too small. Why have I not liked two and a half? There's not a lot of agencies that can move it around with some authority on the fire ground. Was there some porridge right in the middle? It's not a sales tactic for two and a quarter. I think two and a half, it's two and a half that's real well staffed flowing 300 gallons a minute is a great line. But again, Sofa Warehouse Fire, you know, we had a little uh, chalk talk before the thing. Everybody's focused on flow there. And if they had only pulled the two and a half and, you know, being involved in this at the level I have been for over two decades. And, you know, that fire to me was a wake up call because I always taught my members on my engine company is we stretch based on potential. So if my engine company showed up, we would have 100 percent stretched the bulk bed at two and a half. And we would have stretched it in dry and we would have got to a place where we would have asked for water, especially if it was a long distance transit. But let's say my company's in there and we get water. And as we get water, it's like one sofa, two sofa, six sofas. And now we have a bunch. And for some reason, our two and a half's not putting it out. If my company's in there and there's a lot of smoke behind me and there's not enough tactical discipline on the fire ground, they took glass behind me. But two and a half's no assurance that you're not going to end up a line of duty death in a space that size. Yeah, so Dennis, you bring up two things that are independent of line size and or flow uh, that are pertinent between the difference of residential and commercial, and that's pattern, right, and then distance or reach within the space. So in the residential arena, again, we're doing patterns to make a door and walk with it. In the commercial space, we want to slow that pattern down or not use a pattern right, to keep those droplet sizes larger and give them a better chance to survive to get further in the space. So when Dennis talks about kind of this Z back and forth, you know, we also kind of look at that as like a slow sweep back and forth. But the uh, other piece of this that's just as important is distance, right? So if you're gonna employ that slow sweep back and forth, that should probably start close to you and then slowly back and forth, working deeper and deeper and deeper within the space, right? So if you think about a uh, ceiling type that, again, is that bar joist or you've got utilities or drop ceilings or anything like that up top, again, every surface that that stream impacts off of, that uh, water is going to change angles and drop to the floor. So if you slowly sweep left to right for the basically width of the occupancy, work from close to far, you gain the best kind of chance to get uniform water coverage, both at the ceiling level, and then again, where that drops off in the floor incrementally from basically side alpha to side Charlie. Right. Independent of line size, you have those two things you have to take into account. And again, slow the stream down, focus so, on coverage and work near to far. 
So stream, there's a, there's a saying in the fire service that like flashover containers makes, makes poor firefighters. If you use a flashover container to teach suppression, right? It's a fire behavior tool, right? And we, we've, we've had that training scar where people don't have the lines open long enough to steal container. I think one of the things that we have is a training scar when we're talking about suppression on a fire ground or stream reach, all of the stuff that we know about stream reach uh, is visually cue driven in environments with zero heat. You know, like we're on a drill ground, we put cones out, we run the ram on her and we go, look how far the reach is or look what it's doing. And one of the tricks that I teach in my handline class, when you're working that slow Z, the slower you move it across the ceiling. And I, anytime I get a drop ceiling and there happens to be the, the building's lighting system still there and you have the diffusers, right? And I show someone that you move the stream slowly in that Z and you're letting it fall to the floor. If you move it really slow, when it hits the light diffuser, it causes like a shattering of water down so any surface where but we all know that when that stream goes up in that drop and there's there's insulation up there and stuff you know it's like disappears like and it doesn't really it's not even though it's wetting stuff back in there or might be hitting stuff doesn't go the other the other thing that i do is i kind of tell people the slower you move the stream the probably greater reach it has in heat because it's more it's remained solid right but the other thing, when I'm working that Z, I'll show somebody on a fire ground, especially if I have a dry piece of pavement on the initial flow. If I speed that Z up, if I get kind of low and I decide to shake the line really aggressively, I think one of the problems when you kind of get low and you're looking at the fuel package, you want some of that stuff to fall out early. So actually line movement in a quick back and forth causes a disruption in the continuity of the stream and the you get suppression that's a little close to you. You can't take advantage of walls the way we do in a residential. There's no hard stop for your water. So that's why I was also bringing up like, if you're backing up somebody, you shouldn't be like right next to each other. Like, you know, this nozzle needs to be over here or slightly back or whatever, you know, and I kinda, I'm not a good sports analogy guy, but I had the responsibility to keep, if I was just a groundskeeper, because I only played high school sports, never made it to the collegiate level because uh, I didn't have that skill set. Um, you know, if I was a groundskeeper for the field they were going to play the foot, the Super Bowl on, it was a natural grass field. I wouldn't water it from one position. You know, I'd probably lose my job, right? You'd have a green over here and this shit would be brown over here. The footprint of extinguishment in a large volume space Pretend you have to keep the grass green for the world's most important football game, you know, and I think you'll have a firmer grasp for what needs to happen. So, um, so, uh, sorry, Tony, did I interrupt you? I'll go. Um, so the, so what are the, a lot of the conversation we're having here, I think comes from, or it's, uh, around fairly advanced conditions when we first arrive, opening the door met with fairly serious conditions to match that, if we go back to the Tarver incident and we talk about sl slower building conditions or they're they're earlier in the the uh, the evolution of the fire, um, and we only have a portion of the building now being exposed from the exterior in with fire, 
Um, can we talk a little bit about the water application in that instance? Because had they been successful uh, with water application, the right volumes, location, pattern, maybe we don't end up with the conditions that we have inside that building and we don't end up ventilating it, it as aggressively and, and and my words will be crazily that we did um and uh and to to improve those conditions because because i think in the front end we very much clearly based on you know size up risk management strategy we had it, it, an interior attack was was uh totally reasonable um, and there was a point where it became not totally reasonable. And that's when we we're involved in a rescue of a firefighter. So, so can we talk about that a bit? So back to the sofa warehouse fire, right? So like people go like, why did they go in there? Or like, or you see something like, why did the, why did the, the, the Dean line of duty, how they end up in there initially, or what happened in Porterville, California, where only two members responded. And I'll share some pictures from Porterville, I try not to discuss stuff where I haven't actually gone to the fire department and talked to the people that were involved in the incident. So um, I feel fairly uh, comfortable talking about Porterville because they asked me in to instruct, right? They asked me in to instruct and look at their fire department. I feel semi not as comfortable with Porterville to talk about the San Antonio deal because I was teaching in the area. They gave me a tour of the department and I specifically asked that I'd like to speak to people that went to that fire. So even though it wasn't paid, I feel like I talked to the assistant chief there and the chief of training, you know, so um, these things can be very deceptive. Like we've all gone to the house fire where it's like, oh yeah, you open the door. Like people look, and I don't know if Keith gets this. I get this all the time as a technical panel member. Why do you keep showing exterior water applications when you look at the UL videos? And I go, hold on, let me just bring up some of the interior stuff. And someone will be like, well, what's going on there? I'm like, well, the camera's on. It's just the smokes to the floor. There's nothing. Like some of the fires that the UL built in the fire attack study were interdictions post flashover and in the, in the, to the floor. It's like, well, you know, like that's it. That's the, you know, they go, well, I haven't seen a fire like that. And I'm like, well, because those fires they built were very bad fires with extreme amounts of smoke and visibility issues. So we've all been to the private dwelling fire, especially the two second story fires where you could have not even gone on air until you got close to the fire. You, know, you have good visibility. There's a smoke layer. The neutral plane's like at 50 they're a slam dunk fire. You get to a certain spot, you open the nozzle, you leave it open, you go down to the thing. And then pretty much during suppressions where you lose your visibility, the commercial environment, I think it's the distance is further, like the sofa warehouse. They're like looking in, they see a fire back there. They don't realize the uncompartmented growth that occurs. So what happened in Porterville is the members showed up lightly staffed fire department they looked at the fire's visual cue and they go like this is a fire we have some time with and there's a reported someone trapped so they went they went to the search component without doing the suppression component uh as quickly based on their experience level and their biases and stuff and then there was this rapid fire development in a fairly uncompartmentized space and now you have this huge space with smoke to the end. What I will say about the Porterville fire is that when they had that occur, they went to flowing water quickly. And I think one of the reasons those members survived for so long was that even though they were a small fire department, they knew once shit hit the fan, 
they defaulted to water application right away. And if you look at the DEEM incident, that didn't occur. They kind of defaulted the ventilation right away. And what I see as a consultant or somebody's into this, when a big city or big fire department gets in trouble, they lean heavily on truck operations. It's all ventilation. We're going to search. We're going to find and we're going to get out. When a small fire department gets in trouble, they don't have that depth. They have water. And I have almost would say that uh, some of the lengthy uh, survival in some of these reports in smaller fire departments occurs because they default to water quicker. Uh, so, so to answer your question, I think it's deceptive. You see a smoke layer and some orange, there's a huge distance. There's a ton of freeboard between the door and up. So you're not quantifying how much energy is above you. And then you get down there, you basically walk to your death. Like you can walk to your death. It's like a trap. You like walk in there and then you go like, oh, someone changes the vent profile or something. So I would almost say like, again, it's, I get lucky based on my area of passion, the fire service, because it waters kind of solution. I have this like water equals life kind of mindset. It's like, it holds true here too. If the fire is within control of the initial line, any other action by the first few resources on the fire ground is a net negative, but you can get away with it on the private dwelling side because there's doorways and compartmentization. In these commercials, it's just like a trap. Like by, fire development in a large space can easily outpace your suppressive capacity, including two and a half or two and a quarter hand lines. Well, Chris, Chris, did that I, get your answer, Chris? Yeah, yeah, I think that, so. Because uh, it's that's tough, right? It's, it it one hundred percent is that it, that aggressiveness with the fire attack may actually save us from uh, having to deal with this mayday stuff, uh, you know, afterwards. So I like aggressiveness in many forms, and and uh, and and that in, with extinguishment, I think this is a, an important part of the conversation. I think Keith was had something to say here. Yeah, I'll try and keep it short. So I think uh, one of the things to remember, and again, I've got to preface this by saying that, again, the research we've done in commercial so far is exploratory, taking a look at fire behavior, right? We have not done any in-depth research on suppression and ventilation in these buildings. With that being said, I think it is still coming down to an access game and that access provides you a quicker ability to get water onto burning surfaces. I think it's very deceptive that when you walk into a uh, quote unquote incipient stage fire in one of these buildings that we have to remember that the volumes are so large that the amount of air that is inside that space could be equivalent to opening up a window in the residential, right? So where I'm going with that, right, is as you're walking in and trying to figure out where in the back of that 100 by 150 space that this fire is located, that entire time, the fire's got fresh air to grow, and it's doing that, right? Are, Independent are you, of your ventilation. Are you guys seeing, uh, it says like incident overview. Do you see a screen share? It says incident overview. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is this is the Porterville fire. And then Axon Body 3, anytime you see AXON, you know it's a law enforcement officer normally. It's a big body camera company. So this was the library. The library 
for that was on fire here was uh 16,000 square feet. It had been added on uh, to multiple times. Uh, so it was a building that was cut up. But um, you'll see here in this sequencing, this is the first new engine was actually basically shared the block that the fire occurred on. So they got there pretty quick. This is the trap photo, right? So inside the first floor, fire in Charlie Delta corner. Right. And you could see this like if you if you imagine in your mind looking in and seeing like a bedroom glow like that or something down at the end of a hallway or something, you know, you think you have a lot of time and you you really do. Like if you show up in your truck company and the engine's not on scene yet, you could just close the door behind you and search a lot of the house and feel pretty safe. Right. And felt, or maybe you could go down the hallway and close the door or something like that. Hook it with a hook, uh, maybe a can or whatever. But there's no real. There's nothing really stopping here. And it's a library. So, you know, the fuel loads, you know, crazy. It's books, right? Um, so, so if you look at the timing on this, so that's what it looked like pretty much at arrival. This is, this, the incident is occurring here. 1612, 1644, that's 30 seconds they're looking in, right? 161738. So we're looking, so now we're, this is, 45 seconds later, here they are on scene. The front doors opens, first new company. There you go, Keith, look familiar, right? So that, so look at it, it's 16, 17, right? So less than two minutes to this, and they essentially went in to search without a line. So, had a, uh, so this line there, I believe they're inside when this occurs, right? This is the other side of the building. It looks like nothing's going on. And that's that door, that smoke is hitting that engine, but there it dies down a little bit and they immediately go to flowing water. But there it is, it's 22, 21. So essentially within three and a half minutes, the entire first floor of this place is taken, right? And this was ventilation driven, right? So this to me, I look at this, you know, and the tragedy here is, you know, based on experience or bias or whatever, and I've got to teach there. And, and you know, it's difficult to teach in a classroom with the people that actually went to the event. The, the department's small enough. It's not like you get a day of relief when you're in a big compartment. Everybody in this fire department was impacted by this, and it was present uh, at some time during this incident. But I look at this, and, you know, my teaching would tell me pull two and a half, you know, pull, pull a two and a quarter or something. But this fire department didn't have that option. They had inch and three quarter, three inch and five inch. Well, they only had two guys on a rig too. Yeah. I, I, mean, I worked in this county at the beginning of my career. And in the county next door, I worked by myself on an engine for a while. They, these, these, these fire departments do a hell of a job at these residential fires with low staffing. But even with two people on the rig, let's say they had pulled a charge line in here and gotten to this point and did a lazy Z in here and wet all this stuff. Would have the fire gone out? I don't know. That's playing a guessing game. I will know that if it started growing towards them, they would have been able to leave. So I would say one of the ways you assure rescue as an engine company, engine companies assure rescue through application of water especially first two engine companies that re everybody looks at Recio and they go like rescue 
exposure, containment, right, uh, extinguishment, and then overhaul. The R part of rescue for engine companies that are our first due, the first one, two, three engine companies is achieved through application of water, right? So they had the right idea. They wanted to do the rescue, but in this kind of space, you can't, there's no forgive, there, this isn't, this environment doesn't create, if they if this was the residence, they went in there and said, oh shit, the fire's growing, they probably could have backed out, grabbed their line, go down, put out the fire, right? There is that amount of forgiveness does not exist in this space. That this picture, this photo that we're looking at right there is not unlike the helmet cam video from inside of uh, uh, the Home Depot in San Jose. Um, obviously, a bigger space, bigger fuel load, I'm going to say, in the Home Depot. But the the view is the same and they're actually flowing water and there is no not no improvement whatsoever in that. Correct. Yeah. And that's a whole nother fire to talk about at some other time that but both of these fires and and i would say i would say all three of these fires if we talk about southwest supermarket we can talk about porterville we can talk about the home depots right the multiple ones that are going yep. on the the risk management part of this right risk a lot to save a lot risk a little save a little risk nothing when you can't save anything is is it should be part of the equation right again i i, I still want to go back to that and i I look at, um, at, at San Antonio, 2017, right? In 2017, one firefighter died in a burning building, one. And that was, that was deemed in, in San Antonio. And it was a commercial building. And it was, what time did the fire come in? It was, it was the middle of the night. Yes, it was nighttime. This is a nighttime. This is a picture of the layout of that building right here. And that's, that's where fire fire Dean was located. And it was about, uh, it wasn't a huge space. It was uh, 8,000 square feet. So fairly big. Like, uh, you know, for me, and I wanted to build a gigantic oven and, sh and spray water into it just to see how far water can go. Like we're so unquantified in the American and worldwide fire service. Like if you look at wildland firefighting, you can look up how much handline can be cut by type one crew and like four different fuel packages. You know, like I can't tell you somebody who's a complete nerd about this stuff that if this was involved in fire and I was here where the cursor is and I was applying a two and a half inch, like an inch and an eighth in here, I can't tell you with any super degree of confidence that if this was flash over, does the stream stop here, 40 feet in, or does it go 60 feet in? I know when I go out in the parking lot, you're going to get a good 60 feet, right? It has to be something less than that. So the, the, the RAM monitor from Elkhart or the Blitz fire from TFT, if you flow 500 gallons emitted in here, is it twice as good as two, two and a half inch hand lines? Well, one thing that's not talked about is that's done at 80 PSI. So that's 108 feet per second instead of 85 feet per second. So not only is it a larger volume, but it's traveling much quicker. So, you know, I, you know, I know this wasn't what this conversation was really to be about, but there's some best practices that I think that would be, you know, I can't tell you whether they occurred at San Jose. I'm telling you, if I'm first due to a Home Depot that has any substantial fire in it, 
right? And it has a sprinkler system. I'm not pulling a hand line. I'm supporting the sprinkler system with my first two company. You know, if there's a substantial body of fire, as sprinkler systems go off, friction loss increases in the piping. So with each successive head failure, it's less likely to suppress the fire, right? And it, a lot of those systems are only on main pressure or have a fairly small fire pump based on controlling a fire rapidly. I can put a 2000 GPM pump on that and give it the beans, pump it at 200 PSI. My next units in can go to the egress points and flow RAM monitors up into the overhead. And you're trying to create a footprint of water application that guarantees the people that can escape will escape, right? That might include things like lowering roll-up doors. Like at the Home Depot fire, if the back loading dock door was open, right, on your 360 and it's signing your companies around, it would be like open the man door and shut the roll-up door. That big thing at the front of Home Depot's with the wavy flag thing to keep the air conditioning in, right, that you saw in that picture. If somebody had just ducked into that door and shut it down to the six-foot level, the amount of air going to that Home Depot would have ex dropped extremely, right? And people can still run out that door, right? So this comes back to what Keith and those guys are best at. We are not talking about fire dynamics enough in these large volume spaces. And we have this strange bias in the fire service that I think is we are writing checks that cannot be cashed and thankfully, we're not buying the big boat that often, right? If we were making large purchases all the time, we would either be better at this or we'd be killing a lot more uh, firefighters in these incidents. You so know? one thing one thing you touch on is um, anti-ventilation. Um, so can you speak to, and I, I understand what it is, but put that in, I mean, is it, I get it that, that our ventilation efforts can outrun our suppression. So I, I think to, to bring a warm fuzzy to the American fire service where people's minds won't go quickly to a negative place, we have been practicing anti-ventilation uh, in the American fire service for a long time, right? So if you read like truck company operation stuff in the New York City Fire Department, uh, these buildings are so big, often the truck is the one that goes to locate the fire and they have a can man and they open the front door and they're going to do a search. What do they do right away? They shut the, it's in the policy. You shut the door behind you, right? And then what they're hoping is it's in a bedroom and they're going to try to work down there with the can and then hook the door. And if they hook the door shut and they call the engine, the engine's now coming with the hand line. Now they can open the front door, get a smoke to change and, and get your search. So these concepts actually already exist at a high level uh, in private dwelling and multiple dwelling tactics, right? What we haven't talked about is just how they are super important in those settings that I just talked about. They're super important in a different way in these larger volume fires. And I would like Keith to chime in around this. I would agree with you. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, the purpose here, I think, for me is that uh, anti-ventilation in these type of occupancies is going to be important regardless of if and when you start suppression in the sense of 
limiting ventilation in these type of large volume spaces is always going to be important. Uh, and it will just further add to the effectiveness of suppression. Again, compared to the residential where you've identified a flow path you can take advantage of and therefore you want a vent ahead and a bigger vent behind. Right, so a flow path kind of requires like a hall or a smaller space. Now we saw it in our commercial burns and I can't remember who said it, when we were doing the aggressive vertical ventilation, it, it I think one thing that somebody who watches like LA City's operation and it's in a fairly small commercial space and they really do some aggressive topside ventilation, you look at the front door and all of a sudden the fire ground goes from looking confusing, confusing. There's kind of smoke drifting everywhere and smoke coming out of different exits. And now the front door is unidirectional intake. Well, if you end up getting the suppression that you need, that's great. It worked out, right? But I see a lot of really aggressive vertical, vertical ventilation videos that turn the intake unidirectional and then, you know, 10 minutes later, everybody's outside and there's fire out every orifice, right? So um, again, I'm not saying vertical ventilation doesn't work. I'm saying vertical ventilation. And by the way, I, this isn't quantified, but you know, whatever you want to say, 5,000 square feet, 8,000 square feet, you know, the, eventually vertical ventilation can't get you cooling. It can only get you growth. And if you don't get the extinguishment in these in these size volumes, if you don't get strategic extinguishment that's tactically redundant while you're doing that, the vertical ventilation is never going to help you. You know, it's you said hard. vertical ventilation can't get you cooling; can only get you growth. I would say that's a. I think if you look at the data, you can see some lift in residential compartment that's really transitory, but in a commercial, it's just um, because of that field of grass an analogy, if you if you have a fire that is is uh, not growing, uh, I mean, not being actively suppressed in a tactically redundant way, um, that vertical ventilation and commercial is, is, is the beginning of everybody leaving the building. Like you're not vertical ventilation in a residential often results in everybody staying in the building. Like your vertical ventilation in a residential building or a small multiple family dwelling building, I don't think can technically outpace suppression. Well, I think it gives them a chance to make the suppression, right? What we saw well, in the coordinated fire attack. So they can make it. That's the romantic and also the the uh, field application deal. Like when you hear Mo Davis say like vertical ventilation works in private, he's right. And then he shows us the slides. If you look at those single story houses in Houston and those smaller buildings, the thing that I will point out the most is it completely cleans up the scene. Right. So how do you clean up the scene? Well, it's easy. The smoke's going out top. The fire is burning more completely, right? And and now the smoke has somewhere to go. And everything that was down low on plane is now an inlet. So now the engine can kind of go like, I'm just going to flow and work my way down here. Now we expand that space and you go, so vertical ventilation grew the fire there, but it didn't grow it out, out past suppression. And not only did it not, not grow it past suppression, it also cleaned the environment up so well visually. 
because the fire ground is a visually huge driven uh, beast that vertical ventilation that grows a fire in a private dwelling is almost a good thing because it's unidirectionally taking every, the engine company's path is unidirectional to the seat. So All right, well, not, let's, let's stop your share. Yep. Stop your screen share. Okay. He's going he's gonna to show um, another video from the uh, strip mall experience. Oh, yes. That's a good one. To, to illustrate illustrate this point, maybe. I mean, it, it, it's good, it does a good job of uh, really showing the volume of fire that can be produced by um, the max vent that was on that strip mall. Yeah, so right before I share it, I'll, I'll say this. So Dennis, back to your comment, you mentioned about uh, you're not getting cooling, you're only getting growth. Uh, I would say that you could phrase it like this. You can get localized cooling through the growth, right? Oh, so as that, as that flow path reverses yeah. at the front door where the engine's located, and that becomes unidirectional intake, right? They're going to feel cooler as that fresh air comes by them. And that layer might even lift a little bit, right? As that fire is now growing and spreading, right? So in the residential environment, that leads to allowing the engine to get to its final spot, put the water on the burning fuels and get the fire out. In the commercial, you might just get a better sense of what that space looks like, but you're still going to struggle to get water far. Yes. So, I, let me... I, Thanks for clearing up my confusing comments. It was about to get me a million negative emails. <laughs> uh, all right. So, you know, again, this is bringing up a video uh, talking about uncoordinated fire attack. This should be fairly obvious to everybody. Increase in ventilation, no suppression, things are going to get worse, right? But in the context of talking about why the perception of the engine company might experience cooling, here is some visual to that. So top left, we're looking at a fire in the end unit. This is about 30 to 40 wide. This one is about 80 deep. The bottom left, we're taking a look at the alpha side. This is a camera located out front, just outside the front man door, single width, about 32 by 80. Uh, you know, we've got a good fire going within that space, right? That smoke layer is dropped down to about a foot above the floor at the door. You're only looking in about three to four feet before that layer is dark throughout the entire space. On the right-hand side, you're looking at a temperature chart, all right, within that space, three foot above the ground, 12 foot above the ground. And you can see in the top left now, we've made our first vertical vent, all right? 32 square feet of vertical vent, that's four by eight, all right? We again got that information from the tech panel. What are you typically gonna start with in commercial? Residential might be four by four, commercial you're at least four by eight, all right? So what did we see as soon as that vent got made up top, right? Flow at the front door reverses. We've now got almost unidirectional intake, right? But within 15 to 45 seconds after that, we've still got some smoke emanating around the top of the door, right? As that fire is continuing to grow, right? If you look on that temperature chart on the bottom right, you see that temperatures at the 12 foot and the three foot level dropped for a span of maybe 15 seconds, right? And that drop is not due to cooling, that drop is due to flow reversal. Right, you now have fire coming out of that vent. You know, exhausting gases out of that vent are coming out of there at 30 to 40 miles an hour. Right, and very quickly, within 15 seconds after that, temperatures throughout the space are increasing, even if you're here in the doorway three foot in and are feeling cool. 
right? So now very shortly here, we should see the second vertical vents get opened, right? So we've now increased this from four by eight to eight by eight, all right? The, the phenomenon at the front door of full intake is gonna be magnified even more, all right? So now you've got like 30 mile an hour intake at the front door and like 60 mile an hour exhaust at the vents, right? And what you notice now is when you go to increase this ventilation, and this is the point I wanna hammer home, Right, so we've made the hole. Now we're gonna go make it bigger in an attempt to make things better, right? Once that initial vertical vent has been made or ventilation opening for that matter period, right? And you experience that quick flow reversal, that flow reversal doesn't happen again with increased ventilation, right? So look at the line on the temperature chart on the bottom right. When this second opening got made and we're now to eight by eight, there was no 15 second drop that you could take advantage of. It's instant increase in temperature, right? So if you missed that 15 second window, right at the time that that first vent was taken and couldn't get water on your burning surfaces, you're now at a losing battle that you will never overcome. And you can see at the door now, the fire behavior is actually all the way back to the door. You know, the gases, you can see the flames. You know, it's, this is another one of these things where I think there's like, this is a fairly small, what was this, about 2,300 square feet or something like that, Keith? Was yeah, it? 40 by 80 or so. For this this unit was a 40 by 80 one? I thought it was a little smaller. But anyway. Yeah, it was about uh, 17 or 1,800 square feet, if I remember right. That's what I, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. This is uh, about 30 to 40 wide by 70 to 80 deep with about a 15 foot high ceiling. Okay. Um, so you go to a unit fire like this, it's in the middle of the day and you cut this hole, it cleans up the environment and they, let's say often a line that's smaller than appropriate, it's been pulled like an inch and three quarter and you get good suppression here, right? To me, that's almost a bad learning experience. Yeah. Now, do, should the truck company still make the roof? Should they be prepared to make a hole? Um, should they talk about what's on the roof and all that stuff? Yeah, but I think we we in the American Fire Service fight a lot of fires and about that square footage and then not a lot above. But I, I have a question for you that's kind of been bugging me since the studies, right? Fire protection engineering wise, Keith. Now, when I go to my local Home Depot, the smoke control system's no longer automatic. It has to be activated, okay? I think they changed the code. Right. But I just searched on my Internet browser here when I'm in Oakland, I was going on roofs and everything. There was the Bilco door and the Wilco and all that kind of stuff. And they're they're fusible links. It says fusible link for automatic fire vents. Right. So why is the building in industry still have automatic fire vents? Yeah, I don't have an answer for that, Dennis. Yeah. All right, good, good. So, um, so we know that fortunately, this what we did here and what you're looking at is this was simply um, ventilation, right? There's no suppression in that, and this wasn't. We don't really have a whole lot of tactical considerations from the uh, strip mall stuff because this was really just fact finding and information gathering, so that uh, Keith and his crew can work out the next experiments on what to do with large volume firefighting. Uh, but uh, we do know, I think we've, we showed that 
and you've seen maybe some of our experience was good with with not ventilating, not taking all of their windows, anti-ventilation, if you will, at this kind of a building. Um, now, um, I do struggle with, and I think Chris was kind of talking, kind of touched on it earlier, was if we respond to this in the middle of the night, and again, um, you, you're forcing entry to the front door, that, that should be, be part of your, your risk management profile is that you're forcing entry to the front door. If you open it up, you don't know where the fire is and it's full of smoke, then then we should we need to slow down, right? And 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 be be diligent about our operations now. So we know that we 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 don't know where the fire is right now because it's just full of smoke. Uh, chances are with that it's probably deeper into the structure than near the front door. Uh, so Right. Anti-ventilation. Go go back to the rig, get the big line and then prepare to flow water deep into that space. Those are some those are some things that we can we can do here to apply what we're learning from 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 Phoenix, from their their experience there, from the UL stuff, from Porterville, from uh, San Antonio. All of these things is that right. The, the risk management profile is that. We, we don't necessarily need to get in and search ahead of a hand line. What we need to do now is, is, is put the fire out. So we're going to have to diligently work to go find the fire and put it out. We don't want to, again, we're not fighting a residential fire in a compartmentalized structure where there's a window that really accesses every room in the place. This is a big building with, with that's full of fire gases because it's full of smoke. So wrapping this part up here, um, I, it's tough. We went, we went a lot of different directions there. Um, Chris, Chris, uh, some, some final thoughts about, about, uh, Southwest supermarket, um, about, uh, Brett, about Phoenix's recovery. Yeah, hundred percent. So I think there's a few takeaways here. So the, the thought and the idea of how important, water application is in the right places on the front end when you have conditions like this. I think that's the the, the prior to the to the mayday uh, portion of this is how effective can we be at actually extinguishing these so they don't get to the point where we where we experience that rapid uh, uh, deterioration of conditions on the inside kind of just like these guys were were talking about from appropriate uh, positions and with water volumes. I think there was an opportunity at this incident for that to happen. It, for whatever reasons, it did not occur. Um, and that's not a judgment. That's just stating fact. And then and then that operation of and the expectation of how long we can operate in these buildings, given the conditions, um, not are, are doing a better job of managing the or realizing and recognizing the air volumes that we have on our back. That's our biggest limiter inside operating these buildings. When the conditions aren't crushing us, it's absolutely the air on our back. And we, the uh, one of the ideas we that we, uh, you know, we spoke about a lot after this was a round trip ticket idea. The ability to make access, get to where it is you're going to work, and then return prior to your low air alarm going off. That that's actually a practiced. Uh, deliberate skill that you know, that companies and officers have to work on with triggers and and how to to manage that um, to prevent it. And then the we did learn some things on RIT, but we also probably most specifically learned 
if you want to, if we want to keep living and we want to keep going to these fires and, and we want to at some point be successful, we have got to make better decisions in these so that we do not get in trouble and having to activate uh, um, a rescue uh, plan, writ, what, whatever the system is, uh, utilizing the help order and all the other uh, mayday management tools that we have at the strategic and tactical levels um, is it, that is not, that's not uh, sustainable. What's sustainable is trying to prevent these from occurring. And there's a bunch of different things, uh, suppression being one of them, that might help us be more effective at that. And then and then how we actually manage this at the strategic level, having the right the right amount of supervision, organization, and connection that's continually managing the conditions, the risk management plan, our position on the fire ground, which, which is directly connected to strategy, and then what tactics are absolutely going on. We're, we know from multiple, and you've named uh, 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 quite a few of these fires since, we're not inventing new ways to die in these fires, quite honestly. Well, most of the time, it's us operating in, in positions that do not match the overall conditions and that in, in operating in positions in which we are not being effective and the, the value proposition in that operation just isn't there. So um, there's big things, I think, that came out of this. And hopefully some of those impacted the American Fire Service. I know it it impacted it impacted us. It certainly is impacting me. The, the older I get, and the more I, I, I work in this in this career, the more I've realized what I learned. And um, I, I just appreciate having the conversation. I, I like being able to reflect on it. And I had written an article back in the 20th year anniversary is looking at the recommendations from our internal report, what, what actually holds water today and what doesn't. And the, the talk about fire attack, water volumes and those types of things, actually there's, it's based in, you know, some of the things we're talking about today, the things we talked about in ventilation simply don't add up. And, and I, I'm, I'm actually, I'll stick to what Dennis said earlier, is is uh, ventilation typically increase or uh, creates fire growth um, in the abs with the absence of water. And so that's been my message since I sat and watched these and I get to listen to the guy, these guys talk way above my head. Um, but it sticks. And um, and those are a lot of the recommendations that we've had internally uh, since then. No, I, I think uh, so. Then we struggle, right? With, with what do we do with these trucky guys, right? Um, they I want to, they want, they want to go, they want to go, kind of hold the roof, right? And um, I, I was struck by when I came out for the Mayday management um, at, at Blue Card that that they really took that first truck. And I was surprised on these big box stores. They took that front, they took the first truck and they put them on the roof, or they they at least got a view of the roof. And then it was really kind of struck to me is that is that absolutely right? This is again the the life hazard inside the building is low, and and it's going to be higher when we send that crew in there. We don't want that roof to fall down on top of them. So if any kind of volume of fire in there, we can probably see deflection. We may see some kind of compromise. So it's a good. It might be a, a good move to to get them up there. It gets them again. It gets. It, it gets that um, early view, gets them that, that intelligence on what's going on, and um, it gives it gives them a good assignment early in the in the in the incident. 
Yeah, it's about size up way more than it is ventilation or any other operation. It's truly sizing up the conditions of uh, the fire and smoke conditions as well as the structural conditions to the to the best of our ability. And uh, and it can be done from the deck of the roof. It can be done, you know, simply with visual inspection of it on the front end. I think that's actually fairly huge. I um uh and knowing what we know about ventilation in these spaces, I I'm not interested in placing truck companies on the roofs and experiencing taking the level of risk that they'll be taking working over that fire for something that's going to make the incident conditions worse nothing nothing about that adds up to me um and so now there are things that they can do with exposures and 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 determining where the fire or helping us determine where the fire is and in certain instances that that i that i definitely support but it is not a ventilation operation uh and to dennis this point is this is about water and the only shot we have is with is with water not added air i i think uh i mean i we we sat there and talked about it the commercial bill burns how valuable it is still to have a a uh, bird's eye view uh and i would say even even in cases where you've decided not to take the risk to place them an aerial should still go up uh, and maybe in a large apartment, more than one aerial, so you can have some eyes on the roof. You know, uh, where are the firewalls? Uh, 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 are there large air conditioning units? Is there an entire, was the building built in 1990 and now you have a sea of solar cells up there? Those things are freaking heavy, you know, like, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But eventually, you know, like, I think, you know, I might use these words incorrectly and forgive me if I do. Um, I think in the private dwelling and multiple dwelling, vertical ventilation is strategic. Like you, you know that it has to occur. Uh, ventilation can occur before true base fire extinguishment occurs. And that might be very positive for life. You know, like you might get a unidirectional flow path and get more stuff, air coming into the structure. Now, I will say that vertical ventilation in private dwellings and multiple family dwellings in fire departments that don't have a big resource bench has fallen in order of priority around me because I want them doing VES. There's nothing from the research that has made me go like, shit, we should just close like half the truck companies or like they don't have really a purpose on this fire ground anymore. Like I look at the research and if and I was making that joke with uh, Keith that he's a fire protection engineer and there's still companies that make automatic fire vents with fusible links. Man, if they get up on the roof and they go, hey, chief, these things are popping open. And it seems like every time I turn my head, another one of the things pop up. Now you have now you have vertical ventilation occurring that you haven't even asked for that's that's occurring. Right. So, like, to me, it's just another part of the box where you always need to assign somebody. And whether they're on the roof or on an aerial or your risk mitigation, it still needs to occur. So. The, the American uh, fire that's, service. That's a good point because I, I I look back and I I forget about things that have happened right and uh, as a as a volunteer chief in my community here years ago we had a fire in a it used to be a movie theater it was turned into an indoor shooting range and um, you can imagine right that indoor shooting range has got the cut up rubber tires in the back so what turned what started as a small fire there you know grew grew pretty quick. The first arriving engine company had a pretty squared away guy on it. And he's inside telling me we, we need to get out. Well, conditions from the front weren't that bad. I mean, really, they weren't. I didn't even see smoke coming out. He's telling me we need to get out. 
And I'm, I'm like, you need to get out? Really? But, and then, then we got a view from the roof and they're like, yeah, hey, look, there's a air conditioning unit getting ready to come in. It's like, holy cow. So, I, I mean, I, you know, so these things are, are adding up and making sense. And, and definitely I can see, especially on that type of construction, that we need to get eyes up there. And with any kind of volume of fire in there, it can be compromised. Yeah, and, and to save from the, the 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 harassment that we'll get from or that I may get from truck company guys, because I do still love them, um, but they do serve a purpose right up there is oftentimes in exposures or even in fire occupancies that don't have super advanced conditions. They can tell us where the fire is and where we simply from the inside as engine company op operators are not figuring that out, whether it's ceiling height, uh, um, uh, overall conditions on the inside that we simply can't see they're going to help us in a big big way um but i would like their operations to be focused on supporting the attack and supporting getting on the water on the fire and uh less about adding air to the fire right and so another example for you as an incident commander or anybody that listens to this is that you know you'll see a roof membrane catch on fire from like maybe an air conditioning unit or it might even been a small fire that's being gained control and Tony just gave an example of where he couldn't see what was going on from the outside, right? You could be outside, and I had a high-rise fire like this in Oakland, and I was like, holy shit, this is the real deal. It ended up being a shed on the roof. They were remodeling. Um, you know, you could have a, you know, 40 by 50 area of membrane on fire, and the engine company inside could be like, I think we got this, chief, and you stand back, and you go like, this is it, dude. You why aren't you listening to me? Get the fuck out. You know, like, uh, and it's just a matter of perspective. So all of this recon and deployment of units and everything, like, I think it, they're as valuable now as they were then, but now they get to do tasks that are, uh, carry less risk and less detriment, right? If you get good water, in a commercial fire and this thing's full of smoke and there's a bunch of skylights up there and you have the you have the belief in your engine company officers and you know them and they say hey we got base fire extinguishment here and you have a huge smoke problem inside this building and the smoke's still kind of warm you're gonna want that hole you're you know you're gonna want it so i just think coordination and timing and some of the stuff around fire dynamics um people People have these visceral reaction to when you're discussing this. It's like, no, you're even more important now. You just need to make the hole when it's right, or you need to give us the right. Re re you know, we haven't even talked about roof construction. Is it Q-decking? Is it wood? <laughs> you know, how many layers of shit are on? They still need to take their saws and all that stuff. So, Dennis, some last thoughts. I I, I know um, we can go on. This is this is just kind of scratching some surface. But some uh, final thoughts before we wrap up. Me, uh, you know, I, I hope that uh, the UL, uh, you know, they've changed their uh, business model a little bit over there. So I think there's some money. Uh, I, Me personally, I hope the federal grants come through. Um, I'd say remain open minded about stuff. I'm going to send the stuff to Keith after we get off about all these automatic smoke things everywhere, especially in Europe that I think is funny. Um, you know, you can't judge past actions with a lens of current knowledge. 
there's stuff that we have done in the past fire service that is equal to that fire dynamically, right? That we've just, the observations and conclusions we came to, did we think we were doing the right things? Absolutely, right? But now, years later, with a with a better understanding, we can look back and say, God, that is some really horrible stuff that we used to do. Does it make it that person that used to do it or the person that wrote the book that now is incorrect? Does it make that person a bad person? I would categorically say no. Right. So, you know, I think I think people read the Dean LL line of duty deaths and they look at all the extra calls for ventilation and stuff. And there's some righteous people out there. You're like, those guys didn't know what they were doing. That's bullshit. It's in the training manual. It's the way they were taught. They were executing a plan, right? So it's what you what you know for sure that just ain't so. It's that Mark Twain saying is the thing that gets you in the most trouble. And I think only with the help of organizations like the UL and federal stunning and technical panel members can we move move towards truth together. It's a joint operation, right? So that's my closing thoughts. Like, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. Realize that things that you used to do might not be 100% correct. You know, by the way, sometimes the ordinary dude's smarter than the engineer. I was telling, uh, I just came back from Pierce doing some finals on a rig where I had an engineer that obviously is way more educated than me arguing with me. And I'm like, let's just go do it. And he just goes like, I can't believe it's doing this. Why do you think it? I'm like, well, I know the answer, right? So um, there's a reason there's technical panel members and there's a reason there's mistakes in life because, you know, the truth is elusive based on your perspective. So before uh, before we get to Keith here, um, to build on that, um, Chris, can you speak to, can you uh, speak to this fire here? Um, again, a supermarket fire, Phoenix, um, middle of the night, it looks like not a little bit different. Didn't come in during the daytime, but what were the firefighting operations? Obviously, how were they different here than they were, um, 19, 18 years before? So I think a lot of the things that happened at this fire are, are, are really around some of the things that we talked about here. This fire had pretty, and I know this strip mall fair, fairly well, and it's not all that far away. It's only about a mile away from Southwest Super, where Southwest Supermarket was. Uh, so it's a similar vintage. Um, is this had fairly significant fire conditions in it. They decided to pick uh, their positions, both on the front and the back to operate, to flow water. Um, uh, again, trying to create openings so that they get the, get their water closest to the fire with not having a, necessarily a great idea of where it actually is. Um, the ventilation actually occurred well after uh, a clear uh, um uh, determination of a defensive strategy. Some of that ventilation or some of that, those windows were because of uh, 
or uh, most of the window breaking there was because of the thermal exposure, not because crews were going around breaking the windows. Um, and then we there was very little opportunity for for operations on this roof, other than to determine the 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 conditions of the roof, conditions of the fire, and then maybe uh, looking at there was actually some exposures in this in this strip mall to to the right in in both of these photos where they were actually trying to determine whether they had extension into there. So I think I think it was a lot smarter operation. Um, at this point, we we employed uh, quite a bit of the things that we learned. There was not any in, uh, inclination to for making interior attacks once the once the conditions were determined beyond well beyond that. And our risk management clearly as we were writing this building off, and then we were going to do, do the best we can to to uh, get water in it and protect the exposures. And uh, so I think there was. Um, the scenario is slightly different here, um, but we employed a lot of the the, the tactics and the the operations that we learned, you know, previously in in two thousand one. I appreciate that. That's kind of what we're we're all about here. Mayday Monday is to learn from previous things, right, so that we can apply that and hopefully uh, keep things from happening again. Uh, before we get to you. Uh, I can't change my slide, but that's all right. We'll get to that. Um, Keith, some final thoughts? Yeah, I would say I'll wrap it up with this. I think the biggest thing for these commercial or large volume fires is slowing down. And we have to acknowledge the fact that in the majority of cases, we are dealing with a property protection problem here, not a life safety problem. Majority of cases, not all of them. And that therefore this should be focused on size up and access. So size up in terms of type of building, what the hazards are, right? And uh, where the fire is located, and then therefore where the first line should go. Before the first line is ever committed to that building, right? Before that first line is ever pulled in terms of what size it's gonna be, we need to know where the fire is and where the best access is. If it's a large fire in the rear of a large volume occupancy and your only way to go through is through the front door, then you probably want a larger line. You need to be focused on reach and how we can get water on burning surfaces. If you get a truck up on the roof for those high eyes, again, not to vent, but for high eyes for size up purposes, find the fires in the rear and you've got good side Charlie access, choose a smaller line, get water on burning surfaces quicker, right? And the entire time that all of these things are happening and you're processing this information is control the ventilation. So for me, it's slow down, focus on access, size up, choose your line size accordingly, and limit ventilation throughout. So what he just said, I'll, I'll just say one thing that is someone who's worked with a lot of fire departments. He just described something that takes tactical discipline on the fire ground. And I kind of look at like a private dwelling fire. If something goes out of sequence, it's not, it's <laughs> the consequences usually aren't severe, right? So like, when he says control the ventilation, um, you know, is the guy that's used to racking a lot of glass on the residential fire ground not going to have a moment where he racks a bunch of glass on the commercial fire ground, right? So um, he just described, I think, perfectly in many ways, uh, access, controlling ventilation, small line versus large line. Uh, and even he hadn't even talked about that uh, distance 
travel distance inside. Um, I'm worried about going deeper than maybe three or four lengths in the in the buildings of, of large size. Like if you can't get an access point, that's better. Um, but yeah, think about that. It's a it's a fire ground that requires sequencing, right? Even if you're a big fire department that can do a lot of stuff simultaneously, when the code word slow means sequencing, people have to basically slow down enough where sequencing can occur. And I don't know, I mean, I just don't see that kind of discipline on most fire grounds. So um, we touched on this fire a little bit and it kind of, again, builds on what, what Keith was talking about. This was, was San Jose, right? Um, Home Depot, middle of the day. Uh, you've, you've got a chance if you were able to see some of the videos from this, we do know that there was, there was some companies inside operating pretty Believe when the hand officer got there, recognized the the life 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 safety was was low for civilian, but was high for firefighters. That that we changed that we changed the 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 view, the strategy, and then employed some different tactics. Um, as you know, and, and again, I I've been I, my my new fire department. I have we have a Walmart distribution center there, and you know, speaking with some of those places, those those places know. Um, they're they're ready, right? They have insurance on all their stuff. They have they know exactly how much a Walmart shopping uh, mall in an area costs, and they they have a they have they have a contingencies for if that was to happen. So you know, again, uh, while while a lot of the the local places that we have to fight the smaller mom and pop businesses, right? They're local to the community. They're integral. These play these big places like this. Again, there's not a whole lot um, that we're we're really gonna going to save there. So just think about that, apply that to your, to your, to your risk management profile, apply that to your decision-making and um, think about commercial building fires. Remember, remember ultimately that, that um, we can't use residential tactics in the commercial building fires because they, they can, can cause problems. Look, you guys were, were really good. I really appreciate you guys coming on, um, sharing your insights because uh I have the opportunity to, to know you guys and, and knew this was going to be great. I, I know that um, this, again, hopefully it whets appetite for some people out there and, and we can do this again and maybe uh, talk about a different incident that we can start with and, and learn more about, about that, that fire that, that um, maybe we can get Porterville or, or San Antonio. I know we have, we have friends in these places and they would, they would, uh, would talk to us about that. Um Keith, uh, you guys at UL guys are doing great stuff, and you know, you know, we're all the, the three of us are fans of what you're doing, and we hope you continue to do that. Um, remember that um, in the Mayday Monday that's going to come out, there will be links to to the UL study for the strip mall stuff. There's links to the Phoenix internal report for Brett Tarver. There's links to the NIOSH report for the Brett Tarver incident, so you can look at those. Again, there'll be a there'll be a link in there to do so. You can you can look at those things while you're thinking about about drilling and, and training here is this month's skill drill we want you to kind of look to, to to work on um managing stretching and operating the big line uh you saw early on we looked at um uh, the the graphic that's going to come out and it, it has a mnemonic on there an acronym for adults right when do you pull that when do you pull that large line um, there are some places out there that tell you in their SOGs, right? We all know FDNY says 
these buildings, you'll pull two and a half. And uh, it makes sense. Other places, right, we have to make a decision. And, and how can you size up when you might want to pull this? Uh, if it's not obvious, then maybe there's some other reasons. Uh, that large, uncompartmented space like these buildings we've been talking about today. So we, we want to make sure that I want to make sure that you get out and you practice this, right? Get out and practice it and, and be ready to deploy it. And, and maybe it's just to deploy it to the door. And by the time you get it stretched, additional resources will be there. Maybe that truck company will be there. They can help you drag that thing in if you need to. Uh, but, but work on that. Work on deploying it, getting it in a position to advance. You may even practice advancing it into, the, into a building. Um, I've attached some videos from fire engineering stuff to the this month's Mayday Monday. So you can look at that. There's some other different topics out there. If you guys go search on YouTube, you'll find lots of different ideas on stretching and handling the two and a half inch hand line, the big hand line. So get out there and, and practice that because, because um, you can't wait for the big fire to, to, to practice pulling that line. You want to do it before you need to do it. Again, um, Chris, I really appreciate you taking your time out. Um, I know it's it's kind of still kind of early for you. You probably have some time left in your night. Dennis, I know you do too. Thanks. Uh, I know you just flew back into town. So uh maybe you'll go spend some time with your wife. Keith, I hope uh hope you're you're fine, you're good, you're doing good. I haven't we haven't talked in a while, but uh thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, if you see my wife, wish her a happy anniversary for me. <laughs> I'm gonna go up and have a drink with her. All right. Uh thank you all. This is another edition of the Mayday Monday. We'll see you in April.